We're gonna talk about comics from Devil's Due. It's something you wondered if Talking Joe would ever do. I guess we'll explain it all to you. Gonna take some time to read the books we've never read. Oh, Hey, 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 it's me, Mark, and welcome to Talking Joe. Today on Talking Joe Disavowed, we are continuing our look at the disavowed Devil's Due era uh, by talking to Sam Wells. Now, Sam Wells started as an intern at Devil's Due Publishing. I hope he did anyway. We'll ask him in a second. And he went on to be assistant publisher and has now gone on to run the toy shop Toy Du Jour in Chicago. But I will not be talking to Sam alone. I will be joined, as always, by my co-host. It's a real American Tim. It's Tim Finn. Hello, Mark, and hello, listeners and viewers. And let's bring in that guest. Let's. Here he is. It's Sam. I've uh, not done a song for him, but do 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 do. It's a soul man. It's Sam Wells. <laughs> <laughs> wow, awesome. Thanks. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Welcome, Sam. Thank you for joining us. Good to good to have you on. And uh, sort of a tick list of important Devil's Due creators and people that we need to have on Talking Joe as we're covering uh, Devil's Due. So you were always on that list. It was just a question of when do we fit you in? And uh, as as we've been getting through America's Elite and been seeing your name more and more, particularly on those data desk handbook entries, I thought. Uh, right. now's the perfect time <laughs> to, to bring you in and, uh, and talk to you. So, um, uh, welcome. Right on. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, what, what issue are you guys on right now? We have just got to the end of I think eight and we have just read through the first two special missions as well. Sweet. Yeah. All right. I have my pile of books next to me, so I just kind of want to see where you guys are too. I haven't done a. Uh, I did read ahead. I have yeah. not. I have or, not read um, ahead. Although I, I think I know how World War Three ends, but uh, <laughs> uh, I, I represent the fan who was not reading it at the time, and Mark represents the fan who did read it at the time but may have forgotten stuff. So the reread is fresh and exciting. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I've I've not read all the way ahead. Just but just as far as uh, just as far as uh, getting um, special missions Brazil fresh oh, in my mind gotcha. <laughs> just ahead of speaking to you yeah i did the the reread i did recently was just the world war three trade paperback i haven't brought myself to do the full reread <laughs> yet but i i'm going to sync talking joe up with i mean that's what people want to do right like i'm currently doing the it's always sunny podcast and rewatching it's always sunny in philadelphia at the same time so i'm, I'm excited to do that the same thing on something that i was involved in so mm. That's exciting. Uh, you said number eight, right? You guys just did number eight. Yeah, yeah, that's that, right. That was my contribution right there. The uh, I don't know if you see it on my crappy camera, the little tagline at the top. Yeah, and then there was one. Nice. Of just zooming in. Yeah. Do you remember anything about uh, moving the sword from his hand in the full image to behind him in the zoomed in and cropped image? That was that became the cover. So I don't, but I do have a story about those swords. So we were told by Hasbro to start incorporating the swords that another one of their licensors was selling at the time. And there's probably ads in all these books for those swords, the two 
Snake Eyes and Storm Shadow Swords. I yes. was I was pretty grumpy about it. Uh, <laughs> just <laughs> having to shill, pro- like doing product placement in our in our book. It 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 doesn't matter to me now. It shouldn't have mattered to me then. But uh, I actually have a printout of something I did. <clears throat> I didn't think I was going to get to this this early. <laughs> uh, so it was bugging me that we were doing that, and I added this into an issue. I don't remember which issue, but it's I think it's fairly early on. Uh, so it's Duke there uh, wearing his Mountain Dew uniform. Uh, sorry, I don't think I'm fully getting the joke or the reference. Well, actually, it was uh, I nicknamed him Mountain Duke. It was just um, one because of how extreme I thought the outfits were in in America's Leap, but also just it was a, a mini protest about having to do product placement with the swords. The sorry, it's it's really kind of hard to see, but like right above his uh, right there, right above his arms, you'll see. Uh, oh, okay, okay, yeah, Mountain <laughs> Dew logo photoshopped in there. Like it was it was meant to be hard to find, and it, it was for the for the editorial staff. So. Yeah, I had to I had to stop it pre-upload for approval. Uh, well, yeah. uh, that, that TV show that I worked on in uh, in 2001, people still haven't found all the Transformers that I did <laughs> in that one episode. And I'm waiting for the Internet to let the rest of the Internet know. But the show's pretty obscure. So the mystery continues. Um, so so you had to yeah. you had to match the swords because you because Hasbro had got a licensing deal for, for a company to make. Um, some sort of replica swords, but most of the yeah. other sort of characters and look of stuff, um, like yeah. like the main Joes and stuff, that was a Devil's Due design. You didn't have to match to to anything for for that. So for sure, yeah, you were, you were allowed. Yeah, and if I remember the wording, uh, if I remember the wording about like including those swords, it didn't seem like there was anything written between that company and Hasbro, like forcing their comic publisher to include them. It just sounded like they were like, Hey, we want to play nice. And we're like, okay, we'll throw them in there. And I was probably the only (laughs) one that was like grumpy about it. You know, like didn't want to sell out. Sam, how many swords did Hasbro have the third party company shipped to devils do? And how often were you and the other devils do people running around the hallways, (laughs) um, attacking each other with GI Joe prop swords? Uh, surprisingly zero swords Mm. Hasbro was really good about sending us whatever Joe product was happening at the time that they were producing. Um, and then we, we were lucky enough to be close friends with the Palisade guys that we would constantly get the transformer and Joe statues. And I mean, actually Palisades just sent us everything they were making. Cause like we were doing the Micronauts comic at the same time that they were redoing the Micronauts toys. So we're getting those, uh, we were getting all their Muppets stuff, which is still one of the best toy lines that's ever been produced. Um, so like we would send them a monthly book package, just like here's all our books. And they would send us like, here's a bunch of toys and statues Oopsies. and busts and stuff. Nice. Uh, we, Mark, yeah. we usually start. Uh, the first question we usually do is, uh, where are you? And tell us about your room. So cool. Sam, uh, <laughs> are you at home or your store? And can you tell us a little bit about what is behind you? I, I don't recognize any yeah. of those objects. <laughs> yeah, I, I am at home. I'm in Chicago. So I'm in the uh, the room that has no purpose whatsoever other than storing a bunch of crap that <sighs> I... <laughs> yeah, this just this the stuff just eats up a whole room and it's uh, not super fun once it's all set up and you're you're basically done collecting, but this is where my vintage stuff is and it's nonstop uh, that. It's constant 
O-rings just <laughs> giving out and dudes falling over. And it's, I don't know, like 500 plus figures in the vintage line and they just all get their own turn to like knock somebody else over and fall off the shelf. Um, so, yeah, is, that's uh, fun. The uh, mint, mint sealed stuff on your right, is that is that everything? Is that your favorites? Uh, it's just what I had room for at the time. Like newer stuff that, uh, like I ran out of room now. Sorry, uh, I ran out of room up here. Uh, stuff that I don't have room for just goes in the basement. Like I just, or it gets piled up. I'll I'll send you guys a photo of the, what the actual room looks like. Yeah, uh, I'm gonna send real quick a shot of from over there what I'm sitting in, so you see what it actually looks like. But yeah, this is this is just a smattering of randomness. Yeah, it continues on as you can see in the photo, and I I'm pretty sure that photos okay to be shared. Uh, I don't think there's anything in there that I care about being public. I assume that's what uh, a lot of people's Joe or toy room ends up looking like. Done a, oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> cool. So not, not normally doing podcasts in here. So there's not normally a TV tray and a random chair. Uh, I'm, I'm seeing sort of both halves of this world. I'm seeing the stuff on display and also the piles <laughs> of stuff or stuff in Tupperware bin. Yeah. Yeah. Stuff destined for the basement. Uh, cool. Um, I can see a whole heap of stuff. <laughs> there's looks like a sergeant savage is it a like a shampoo or bubble bath uh yeah 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 oh he's hanging out right here right little sergeant slaughter right yeah <laughs> at ease disease <laughs> yeah is that a prototype or vamp oh yeah it's a vamp it's the uh um, white one yeah i can't get to that one too easily there's a bunch of loose figures on top it was the prototype hound technically from the crossover uh, San Diego set, which was, yeah, it, so it was a project that we worked on. Oh, from then, not from recently. No, yeah, yeah, that was, uh, so this, this gets into a whole other story, but, uh, Devil's Due had another company that just started called Kanoichi that did a lot of creative services for Hasbro. Uh, and that company carried on, uh, after Devil's Due lost the license for Joe, we were still doing a lot of in-house stuff for Hasbro. Uh, and a lot of it was packaging. A lot of the 25th anniversary uh, card art was Kanoichi. And then we did those San Diego Comic-Con box sets. And one year, uh, a couple of the members from Kanoichi went out to Hasbro just to like, you know, we, we had like quarterly visits and they came back and they had that hound. And they're like, hey, so-and-so sent this hound back so you could see it for the, um, to work on the cover of the packaging. And I was like, that's weird. We, we don't ever need to see this stuff in hand. Oh, he was just, he was just gifting it to me. <laughs> like the whole, to get it out of Hasbro, it was like, oh, they need to see this to work on the packaging. <laughs> and like, I just, I was dumbfounded when they handed it to me and gave me exactly the line that he gave. I was like, oh, okay. It was a gift. I get it. I want to put a pin in Konoichi. I want to come back to this yeah. on the yeah. other side, on the other side of the, the epic hill we're going to climb. Yeah, this is interesting to us. I don't want to forget it. Mark, start with your number one question. So, so this is the the origin question, right? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, little Sam Wells. Yeah. <laughs> what was his uh, his first exposure to uh, to the GI Joe property? Uh, toys, comics, cartoon. Yeah, uh, it was cartoon, cartoon, and the toys. I had the first 
series from 82, I didn't get any carded figures and I don't know why I don't, um, I was raised by my great grandmother and I, I don't know if it was just like the value perceived in her eyes versus like the, the single carded figures versus the, the ones that came in vehicles. Uh, so the first 82 stuff that I got was grand slam with the howl, the MMS with Hawk and the vamp with clutch. My first carded figure was the next year with tripwire. So like, Forever growing up, I was just like, yeah, this is the first card figure I got. And I was like, heck yeah. And then I realized that like he wasn't even part of the first series, which kind of like <laughs> blew me away later when I figured it out. So yeah, the cartoon, absolutely loved it. It was my number one go-to thing. I, Yeah, obviously, Joe was my number one. Never really touched the comics. I had a, uh, like my best friend did the comics. So I got to go over to his house and he would literally like, page for page show me why everything was so cool and a reissue right i never really got to sit there and read these comics myself but andrew was like hey look this is what storm shadow is doing now i'm like oh crap that's really cool when did you start reading comics that had to have been late 90s uh probably around like 98 99 i had a friend who gifted me uh i think all four of the uh adam warren gen 13 bootleg issues I, it blew me away, like the 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 comedy that was in those issues, uh, and and the art style at the time hit right with what I was into at the time. Uh, so right around ninety eight, ninety nine, I went and started collecting all the Marvel Joe, and that apparently was the sweet spot to buy them because I paid like nothing for my collection, and I'm I'm complete, you know, like all one fifty five, and picking them up when I did, like now versus now, like seeing what things are going for. I'm so glad that I got in and out of there when I did. So, um, were you, did you ever get into reading a lot of comics? Did you go to a comic book store? I didn't have a huge comic history other than, you know, like collecting those Joes, uh, random stuff here and there after reading those gen 13 issues for the first time. It, it absolutely grew when I got the job at devil's due besides just reading everything that they had sitting around, we had comic Wednesdays. Uh, we would all pile in like two cars and head, head over to either Chicago comics or Graham cracker comics or uh, challengers uh, here in, here in Chicago. So like then working at devil's do like the amount of comics I read was massive and it was kind of crippling like <laughs> money wise uh, versus like, almost completely no comics after leaving devil's due, like just completely dropped off. I, I still like make a every other month trip to a comic shop and then like end up spending way too much money, but it's not like I have a pull box anywhere now. I'm not like rabid about certain series. It's just like whatever strikes me when I'm there, I'll pick it up. And even the IDW series, when that came out, I was the only one in the office that was gung ho about like, getting every issue and trying to get as many covers as possible. And then like, I think like possibly most of their audience, I, I died off a little, a little bit into it. Like obviously that Cobra series was one of the best things I'd ever read. And I remember like preaching it to everybody in the studio, just like, do you, do you guys see this? This is awesome. And they're just like, shut up, Sam. Like we've got other things to work <laughs> about. Yeah. All right. Let's, let's go back uh, half a step. So um, you applied for and got this in. Wait, before, yep. before that, before even that step, um, so the the toys did you did you keep on going from eighty two through to I don't know present day or, or was yeah. there was there a, a, a gap? 
yeah, the, there is the gap that I think all of us have, which was high school. Uh, so I, I looked back and I think my last Joe that I bought uh, retail was this 92 Firefly. Uh, mm. <laughs> like when I went back and looked at, like pulled my collection out. I think my original collection had 80 some odd figures in it. And then I stopped for high school and I met my then girlfriend, now wife, Liz, in high school. Um, and then like right after high school, we were like, we opened up into all the nerdy shit. Like we start going to thrift stores to buy like toys and t-shirts and stuff like that. And then that led to us setting up at toy shows in the area. And at that time, I like pulled the Joes out. I was like, well, this is what I was into. I'm going to start collecting these again. And so like we had a list, like she had a, her own list shared with me that like anytime like a birthday or anniversary would come up, she'd head to the antique mall and sit there at a booth and like have them open a case and like sit on the floor and be like, all right, he doesn't have this hawk. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, same time I com- completed the Joe run of comics, the Marvel run, I, I completed my uh, 82 to 94 run of Joe's and I've been buying everything since then. What were you doing for school or for jobs such that when you saw this internship posting, you were interested? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So 2001, Liz moved from uh, St. Louis, where we lived, up to Chicago for school. And, you know, it all coincided. Like she moved up right uh, when the book was coming out, and September 11th happened, and then the book came out, and everything was super weird. I stayed in Chicago, or sorry, I stayed in St. Louis until the beginning of 2003. So when that first issue came out, it was sold out everywhere. And I, I I couldn't find it anywhere. And she eventually found it up here at, I think, like a Graham Crackers. And she found like a signed copy from uh, maybe Kurth and uh, Blaylock. I wonder if it's the copy I have sitting here. Uh, but she found the first issue for me because I was so bummed that I couldn't find it anywhere locally. Yeah, signed copy of Larder and Blaylock. And she found it like a graham crackers. Uh, so then I, like I said, I moved up in 2003. And I, my job at the time, oh, <laughs> yeah. I <laughs> I just, jobs for me, I've never done like customer service, which is weird now owning a, a shop ourselves. Like I'd never worked uh, fast food or like uh, worked at like a retail shop or anything like that. So the job I got when I moved up was working graveyard shift at a, insurance company that insured all the cabs in Chicago. So I worked from seven at night till three in the morning, writing reports for these cabbies that would come in. Uh, They'd come in with their police report. It was clear on the police report that they they were at fault. And it was my job to write a report, making it not their fault. Uh, So in the mornings, I would intern at Devil's (laughs) Two. And that was me one day at Graham Cracker Comics, standing there looking over and there was a... um, a little sign, a little like flyer for the internship. And late, later I found out it was uh, Susan who put it together. But um, my, my story about it is just that like it, it said, while you won't get to write G.A. Joe, you'll get to learn the ins and outs of the comic industry. And then just like going however many years forward and getting to write G.A. Joe. I was like, screw you, flyer. Like I did it. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I, I wrote an issue and I was like, all right, that was it. I just need to prove that flyer wrong. I'm out of here. What was the application process? I, I believe Susan was supposed to be the one interviewing, but she was in a meeting when I showed up for my <laughs> interview, which I don't know how that got crossed. So I interviewed with Marshall Dillon, who was 
the uh, the associate publisher before I got that position. Uh, I came in. Uh, oh, okay. So previously, so so Devil's Due was on in their first location on Western Avenue here in Chicago, above a Seven Eleven. And I went in one day and dropped off my resume because I because of that flyer. And I actually showed up right when they were like frantically packing or like leaving. I think it was maybe like Thanksgiving weekend. And I, I came in with my, my resume and got up there and it was just Blaylock. And he was like, like he didn't know what was going on. Like <laughs> they were moving offices and it was the end of the weekend where everybody had already left for like Thanksgiving to go home. And so uh, it was super weird. I was in there for a second and I felt like I was really bothering him. But I dropped off my application. Obviously, later I got called and scheduled for an interview, and the interview was at the new location. So I went in, and uh, Marshall brought me over to his little cubicle, and we just kind of stood there uh, in the middle of like the the bullpen. And he's just like going through my uh, resume and like all the questions I filled out for their questionnaire. And <laughs> it like I don't think any of it really mattered. It was just like we need to know that you're a human and you can count and read and it's like yeah i can i can do that but my favorite part was the end of that questionnaire they have you fill out fill out it said um are you okay working for six weeks without pay and like when we got to that and he was like okay you said yes and i was like yeah actually um i think you guys should put that question first because that's going to weed out a lot of people that if you just like hey you know this is unpaid right yeah so i actually i interned there well past six weeks. Uh, I was probably there maybe three or four months and I didn't want to leave and they didn't want me to leave, but uh, I couldn't keep working for free, like both on their conscious and like me, I needed to like focus on getting work that wasn't, you know, free. Uh, so after I left, I created an application for the position I wanted. Like I just like made a form about like doing the web store or something like that. And I filled it out and turned in my application to Susan. I was like, here you go. And they thought it, they thought it was hilarious. Like, you know, like, okay, this position doesn't exist, but like you just created it and you applied for it. And I'd say like maybe two weeks later, I was sitting at my desk at my overnight shift and Susan messaged me and she was like, Hey, um, we want to hire you for that position that you created. I'm like, hell yeah, let's do this. Yeah. All right. So that must be October or November or December of 2003. Oh, I mean, you're, <laughs> it sounds like you've done more research than I remember. Barely. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. Barely. Yeah. Mark, Mark <laughs> just, did, Mark did research for this episode. I just showed up. <laughs> yeah. I do remember that, um, the first time I met those guys, uh, it was a free comic book day when issue 20, Oh, wait, no. Issue 14, I think, was coming out. Yeah. Um, whichever one Seeley took over for, which might have been 16. Oh, yeah, 16. Yeah, I remember this one was coming out, and I had to... I was on my way to St. Louis, but like on the way, one of the suburbs, the Graham Crackers, I think Norton, Mike Norton, Tim Seeley, and Josh Blaylock were all signing at. And I went up there, and you know, I was a huge fan, so I was like, oh my god, I gotta get these signatures. And so, like, it made my day because Free Comic Book Day is always first weekend of May, and uh, my birthday is May fifth. And it was just like, oh, this is a really good kickoff to my birthday. And like, and now, like, what am I? Like, I like Tim's art a bunch. And then he started 
on issue 16. So it was just like everything came to a head for me <laughs> as far as a collector. I was like, this is, this is great. So um, you were, all right. So you were doing the web store. That was the job you were hired for. Yep. Yeah. And so, and, yeah. and pretty quickly that, that grows into other things. Yeah. So I came in for the web store. I think at one point I might've had the title of inventory manager or something like in the books. I know, I know it started off when I first started getting my credit, it said office assistant or something like that. But yeah, I started doing the web store. There's a lot of uh, like taking stuff in, like when the books would ship from the printer and like possibly needing to refill stuff for diamond out of our stock as well. So like a lot of the, like the back room stuff, um, I'd say one of the most annoying things we had to do as interns was uh, roll posters because <laughs> they just came flat and we had to roll them and put them in sleeves for like doing cons and like shipping them out to people. Or tubes, right? Yeah. 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 Can you, was there a warehouse? Are you talking about hundreds no, we had a, or we, thousands or tens of thousands of copies? Hun hundreds. Yeah. We had a, we had a back room that was just a big storage. Okay. Uh, and actually uh, moving or like visiting Chicago in like in 2001, early, early on when the book was happening and uh, visiting Liz and staying with her, I was like, man, I really should go like the address is in the book. I should just go there and see if like they need help. And the, uh, the, the thing that I had in my mind was that warehouse with hundreds of thousands of books. I was like, I'm going to like knock on this door. Somebody on a forklift is going to stop and be like, what do you want kid comic books? And I'm like, no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to risk it. Cause I, like what I had in my head was literally just like a giant warehouse with nobody know what I was talking about versus what the actuality was. And, and this warehouse that, that you and I are sort of describing that's diamond comic yeah. distributors that's in like Plattsburgh, New York, or yeah. did they have a warehouse in, I forget, North Carolina or South they, Carolina. They had like four or five main warehouses when we were. Okay. We and were then oh, several years later they had, they, they, they went down to two. Murfreesboro, I think, was a big one. Okay. In Tennessee, yeah. Okay. Uh, Mark, I I grabbed a couple of uh, photos off of uh, Facebook where you'd been tagged, which are back from the Devil's Due days, mm -hmm. uh, and I wondered um, what what memories these might prompt just from um, um, sharing them and seeing what your uh, thought reactions uh, are yeah. to them. Yeah. Uh, so this, I think probably was my idea but we did a spirit week uh so every day there was a different theme to come dressed as uh and then we'd give an award based on like you know who who hit the theme the best this one was just school spirit uh so it was like wear your ddp colors or your devil's new shirt or whatever uh so i'm there on the left hand side throwing the uh <laughs> little devil horns my t-shirt that I'm wearing existed before I was there, but since I had access to everything in our storage, uh, I was like, Oh, well, this is my t-shirt now. <laughs> can you, can you do a, a left to right? Who's who? Oh man, I'm going to feel really bad if I can't. Oh, sorry. 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 Uh, <laughs> no, no. Yeah, I got it. I got it. Yeah. Everybody here is cool. <laughs> Every now and then there'd be an intern flowing through that. I like we did was not memorable. <laughs> uh, uh, on the far left there is dinosaur. Uh, which was our letterer, Brian Crowley's uh, mascot that he had in his desk forever, uh, followed by Caitlin, who took over the web store after I moved uh, to assistant publisher. Uh, so next to me there is Blaylock. Uh, in the foreground, there is Josh Emmons, who he he interned for us, but he he, he did a lot of like 
backend web stuff that like we didn't utilize him for. <laughs> he was probably rolling posters when he should have been creating a Devil's Due app. Far back there is Nick Grobe, who I think did a lot of um, technical web stuff for Kanoichi. Uh, and then Tim Seeley in front of him next to Blaylock. Far back there is Michael Sullivan, who was our main editor at the time. Uh, I, I don't know if Mark Powers was around at this time or had left. Like Mark did a like work from the office, then he would work from home type thing. Uh, Sean Dove there, who took on as our main design lead. So he did all the like production on the books. Uh, Susan up front. Uh, who was VP of marketing and then Brian Crowley next to her, who was our letterer I mentioned with the dinosaur. And then uh, as we called him in the office, Beanie, which is Brian Torney who interned for us and then took the lead at the other company, Kanoichi. And he is now at Hasbro. Uh, so that's everybody there. Yeah. Cool. Uh, the next one I had was, this one, I think, this is you on the <laughs> left. Yeah, with a sort of a, a stripe up your your head. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> what I wouldn't give for that stripe on my head now. Um, <laughs> yeah, I I don't know what con this is. It it looks like it's possibly Wizard World here in Chicago. Um, yeah, so that's me and Chris Crank, who Crank was our our letterer for the longest time, and he he ran the. Uh, the website and he did a lot of the uh message board like monitoring for us and that rug too i wonder where that rug is great rug huh. how yeah. um during convention season in the spring and summer and maybe early fall uh how many cons was devils do doing or how often or how far were you traveling yeah i mean we we did as many as we could and at cons is where you get that little bonus bump outside of the books. You know, it's, it's obviously there for networking and marketing, but like, you know, the sales also really help out all these comic publishers at the time. And it, it is neat to, uh, to do those shows too, to like get to see all these people that only exist on message boards at the time, you know? So there were, there were a lot of shows. I probably didn't do too many outside the Chicago area. Like I'd, I'd get to any Joe con they did or any, like if we did San Diego comic con, I was, I was there for that. But like the smaller stuff that like the wizard worlds out in like Philly and stuff like that, I, I didn't do those. So those were usually spearheaded by Susan and she'd grab somebody random. Like Tim would go to draw at the booth or, you know, Blaylock would do most of them. Were you um, pulled into helping to pack up for a con or unpack oh, yeah. from a con? Absolutely. Every time. It didn't matter what <laughs> what level I made it to. <laughs> uh, I was always <laughs> helping packing for a con. This is this is actually a question I ask most people. Um, just like, what have you done at a job that was the most outside of your job description? And mine was, we had a warehouse at some point uh, later on, like the, probably around like 2008 to 2010, on the south side of Chicago that just housed our books. Like we got way too many books and we, we needed a place to put them. So we had a building that wasn't a legit storage building. It was a friend of Blaylock's who owned a building and it was just a vacant building. And so there were other businesses storing stuff in there, whatever. We had a semi come and drop off some books, like a pallet of books. 
and I wasn't there. No one was really there, but there were some guys working in the building at the time. And we're like, well, just can you take them off the, the semi and put them on the, the dock, whatever. Uh, when I showed up, these books were <laughs> locked inside of a white cargo van that was just inside the building. And the only door that was open was the back two doors. And we needed a box for this convention that was in the driver's side seat. So the only way that I could get to this box was either enter, empty the entire van or what I did, crawl along the top <laughs> of all these boxes inside this van to get to the front and like try to like no leverage, just like lift this box up. And like, as I'm lifting that box up, I remember screaming, I'm an assistant publisher. (laughs) (laughs) And so that, that moment is just like, I try to see if there's people that have like similar moments in their, their career uh, where they're just like, why am I doing what I'm doing right now? That has nothing to do with what I should be doing. One of the things about retail and publishing is sooner or later, you, you may just be moving boxes of books and if you have a book and it's, you know, 20 bucks or 30 bucks and you can sell it, then you make your like wholesale on that. And if you have two or 10, you hope you can sell them. And if you have a hundred, you start to think, ah, is this 10 too many or 50 too many? And if you have 200, it starts to become incredibly unvaluable and bothersome. And they stop, they stop being gorgeous, interesting books. And they just become widgets, just sort of anything like might as well be bicycle gears or light bulbs. Why do we have all these stupid light bulbs? I'm selling comic books. So I, I grabbed my long box from the basement today to bring this up right before the the podcast. And I asked my wife to open the door when I was coming up. And when I got up to the top, like carrying this long box, she opened the door and I went, why do long boxes exist? (laughs) Why why don't I have two short boxes? (laughs) I I have an answer for that. The, the, The difference is when comics were printed on newsprint, uh, long boxes were not heavy and <laughs> with comics printed on glossy paper and they're now thinner and it's heavier. And then you can fit many more glossy paper yeah. comics in a long box. Long boxes Thank are you. really heavy and most people should not be lifting long boxes <laughs> yes. of, filled with modern glossy comics. It's actually just too heavy and you're, we're all going to hurt our, our backs or our necks. Oh yeah. No, I have a horrible back and it's uh, probably one of the, main things I took away from Devil's Do was this back that I got from lifting boxes. So there's probably a curve in terms of, in terms of seniority of, of role about what you do. Like if you're starting at the very bottom, <laughs> you'd say it's not my job, but you, you know, you're just told to do this, that, and everything. Mm-hmm. And, and everyone's your boss and you just got to do what you're told. <laughs> and then, mm-hmm. and then sort of in, you know, in the middle, you kind of say, that's not my job. I don't do that. And then, and then as you get, as you get more senior on the other end, it's like, well, now I'm responsible for everything. So, <laughs> yeah, and also fe- feeling bad of telling someone else to do it. It's like oh, I'm just going to do it. Mark, is this is this the parabola of corporate responsibility? I think I think, I think so, this yeah. I think this is a shirt or a mug you can make and sell. Um, was <laughs> there is, was there? Another... I probably need to quit this podcasting talk and come up with a management theory. Yeah. Um, um, is there, there was, is there, there one was... more photo you wanted to show? There was, it was this photo, which is linked to uh, a video, which I'll just uh, I'll mm-hmm. plug in uh, here. So this is the visit from NBC's uh, Leonard Michaels, yeah. AKA Scoop. And uh, and I think this is 
a very young Sam Wells uh, talking through some figures uh, from boxes. That's a new Storm Shadow. Leatherneck. That's payload. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so they were like, hey, we want to make you look like Rain Man. How can we do that? I was like, oh, all right. Here we go. <laughs> yeah. So that, I mean, that whole experience was pretty great when Leonard Michaels came in and we had the Scoop Fest. That, I mean, that was, that was pretty fun getting to film that. And like, we all did little, little bits of acting here and there. But um, part of the reason I think that I got hired was in my application or maybe the intern level. Uh, I mentioned that I had all the figures from 82 to 94. And uh, this shelf behind me was built to fit into my cubicle when I got there, this gray shelf. Um, uh, obviously, it was really great for reference. Like Tim would run over all the time and grab a few figures and run back to his desk <laughs> and draw them rather than like looking online for the, the image. Like it's much, much easier if you have the figure in your hand, you know? And I also, I, I think you know, Marvel one through one fifty five, uh, I was the only one that had that collection. So I brought mine into the office for easy reference as well. Wow, you were the you were the G.I. Joe history librarian archivist. <laughs> so yeah. um yeah. so um uh Blaylock uh has said that when he was pitching or very early on after he made the, the deal for the license that Hasbro didn't have a, a Bible for GI Joe. Mm. And then fast forward to uh, 2004 uh, spy troops. There is a Bible. Uh, I, I have it. Uh, it's, it's over uh -huh. there. It's over there. And some of it is uh, scans of old cutout uh, file cards from the backs of toys or um, photocopies of order of battle pages. Okay. I don't think that I've seen that Bible. Uh, we do have like a, um, whatever the cross promotion, like here's all the assets, like digital and, um, visual assets for the brand. We got that when spy troops was coming out, but okay. we didn't, I don't think we ever saw that Bible, but that's cool that they, <laughs> someone there had to scan books. We're starting to we cobble it together. Um, yeah. Also, I uh, I don't I don't know this object's uh, precise provenance, so uh, it, it may be that you know like an intern or a fan like added to mm -hmm. it. I, I don't want to suggest necessarily that like an official Hasbro employee was like, we don't have anything. Let's scan old toys, um, but that might have been it. So um, as the fan employee who maybe didn't know more than some of the other employees, but had sort of a more consistent like breadth of uh, connection to the brand. Did you feel like you could sort of represent sort of some of the fans who were coming to the Devil's Do stuff? Did you feel like the Devil's Do stuff was continuing the Marvel run, but also making its own uh, space? Um, how, do you, how do you see your, your role at, at Devil's Do sort of informally as a G.I. Joe fan? I, I think, and actually this phrase is attributed to somebody else at Devil's Do internally, but I, I feel like I was the, uh, you know what we should do guy, or you know what would be cool, <laughs> without actually using those words. Where where I would see something happening and be like, mm, but it should be this, you know? If, if I got to it early enough, meaning all the way up to like possibly Tim drawing, you know, be like, 
but could this happen instead? Like not, not changing story, but like adding what I could where I could that was fan service, you know? Yeah. I mean, something like that header there. Uh, this isn't historical, but just that, you know, like, and then there was one just like telling people like, you know, this is where Snake Eyes is dying, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, stuff like that. Like, I, I, I can flip through the books and see little things here and there that, that I know that were, was me. And there's actually one where we added something into a book and the author got upset about it because he didn't know that that change had happened until he received his comp copies and something that like, I was like, it would be cool if this line happened uh, as a throwback to something. <laughs> and then the author got in and is like, what the heck is this? Are yeah. you able to be specific on that one? I don't know if I, I don't know if I want to. <laughs> is, um, can you talk about your progression from, uh, are you done from intern to web store um, manager? Mm -hmm. How were your responsibilities added to, and how did you make it up to your, top position there at Devil's Deep. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't don't really remember the timeline too much other than associating my first big blunder as assistant publisher. So I know what book that was. <laughs> but so internship to web store manager, inventory manager, whatever, responsibilities did not change that much. It was just I was now getting paid, you know, like I was <laughs> part of the staff. So it was it was a lot of the the grunt work and you know, rolling posters and telling interns to roll posters and getting mad when the interns aren't rolling posters. <laughs> like we had an intern that like refused and would just like, I want to go out in, in the main area and pitch stories all day. And like, that's not, ah, that's not what interns do, man. I'm sorry. I, I actually told Josh this story recently and he apparently didn't know that this happened. We had that we had a GI Joe event at our shop recently where Blaylock came and signed and then Roger and Josh, who wrote the after, after, after action report came and sold their book and signed their book and stuff. And so we were just, you know, reminiscing about Joe stuff all day. And I was like, Josh, the day that you called me to offer me, offer me the, uh, publisher role, uh, I was at a coin star <laughs> dumping coins into a machine. Like Liz and I were standing at the grocery store dumping coins and he called and he's like, Hey, uh, you know, Marshall's out. Uh, do you want to, do you want to take on this role? You know, like, obviously it's, it's going to be tougher and like, here's the pay. And I'm like, oh, yeah, absolutely. I do. Thank you. And like, I just told him that story, you know, a couple months ago, he's like, I had no idea. Like, I, like, I remember that call, but I don't remember <laughs> hearing change clinging in the background. So let me interrupt my own uh, mm -hmm. question. What does a publisher do? Yeah, it, it was all the boring stuff. That, I mean, like, obviously I made it as much about Joe as possible, but it, it's a lot of communicating with the printer and being the go-between with the printer and Diamond. So setting print runs, looking at the trends of uh, your previous sales, knowing when you need to drop or raise your print runs on a book, like when a, a title is like gaining or you need to do second printings. And then, yeah, just, just the logistical stuff. And then on all your free time, like popping over to editorial, <laughs> putting your nose in there. So, so that's, that's what prompts all sorts of questions. So does that data about like, uh, the, the, the number of sales and things across the devil's due, does that still exist? I guess it's question number one. And then maybe sort of question number two is, can you sort of talk to the kind of trajectory that maybe the, the sales 
had over the course of the Devil's Due era? Uh, well, your first question was: It is the info out there about the numbers? Yeah, mm, I, I think it exist, it's readily yeah. available somewhere. I never tracked that, but I know that there was a lot of people putting that info out there. I think that info is out there for any comic book. But I, I purged my brain of all the number stuff. Like after I left Devil's Due, um, I. I, I know there was a number that we always sat above and I can't for the life of me remember what that was. Uh, I know that like, you know, when you reboot a series like we did with America's lead or like when we did like a frontline or special missions, you always get like a huge bump. And I, I don't know what that bump is per se, but like, I want to say like your sales could go anywhere from like a hundred thousand copies when you're starting out to dropping down to like, 22,000 copies when you're like, uh, I guess the book's still worth it, you know? And we had, we had a lot of like create our own stuff come through where people would bring their own books to us, like not licensed stuff, but just like, here's a book I want to do. And I was like, well, the deal is like, if your book doesn't get enough to warrant the print, you have to pay for the print. And there would be books that would come in with like 900 copies ordered. And it's like, I mean, that's just what the creator owned life is, you know, like mm. going through a publisher you have to eat that cost, you know, um, like the, the, uh, the way that they're doing it now is way better, you know, with uh, a lot of people just doing it through Kickstarter, you know, like don't involve those publishers. There's, there's no need to do that. You know, just get your book to the people that want it. Or publishers going to Kickstarter and then they've, sure. yeah. they've, they've covered yeah. their basic cost and then they can list in diamond previews and sell extra copies through stores. One more question about sort of sales. So, so at the moment, we've been sort of doing a lot of focus on the show at the uh, America's Elite era mm. and the relaunch. Do you do you remember if um if that kind of had the success in terms of creating a bump to the numbers of that re that relaunch that that was oh, hoped for? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. That was a, it. Was a huge win. Obviously, the money wasn't there with issue zero because it was a twenty five cent issue. <laughs> but as you notice, like we went right back into the second printing that came out at a normal price point. Uh, so the second printing of issue zero came back out. And I think the retail at the time was two ninety five on the cover. Um, but yeah, for sure. Like uh, relaunching and rebooting. Uh, it's, it's just the, it's a necessary evil in, in comics in general, you know? So I'm on, um, I'm on, uh, I'm on Comicron right now uh which is the website of john jackson miller who's the like guru of american comic book sales figures mm. and he has also written star wars novels and uh i think he wrote he read iron man comics for a year and um uh so america's elite in uh was august august of 2005 uh sold an estimated uh, 22,000 units in the, in the direct market. And what, what issue? I'm sorry. Uh, issue two. Yeah. And, okay. uh, and so that's the, it's, uh, it hasn't quite cracked the top 100. And mm -hmm. as a comparison, everyone, uh, justice, the, uh, uh, is it Jim Kruger and, uh, Doogie Braithwaite and Alex Ross justice league. 12 mm -hmm. issue painted series that's selling 190,000 units that month and new Avengers from Marvel's at about 150,000. But as yeah. often happens, there's, you know, there's, there's a drop off. There are the, there are the top yeah. 10 books that are selling over a hundred thousand. And then, you know, things go down 
sort of linear, but quickly from there. And there are there are plenty of books that are selling much less than uh, than than GI Joe. You know, there, there's an X Men book that's selling much less than GI Joe, and there's a, yeah. there's a there's a DC miniseries that ties into their big event that's selling much less than GI Joe. Just as yeah. two examples. I don't think it was ever said, but there there's definitely a, a number that like. Under that amount, we no longer do these books. That like either if it was like one of our self, like one of our own books, or like a license, like we we're, we're going to kill it under like x x amount. But I don't know if it was said that like Joe wouldn't have come to that. Like we had we had a contract we're going to do as many books as we can in that time because there's also the sale of the trade paperbacks that did really well for us. Uh, so like when the book market got a hold of our trade paperbacks, that's where a, a big bump came for us uh, dollar wise, you know? So uh, I, I feel like the number you said for that number two or whatever was usually right around where Joe sat was like 22,000 or whatever. Yeah. I feel like that's just kind of where it rode out for the rest of the series. Do you remember how much you, what the print runs of your uh, graphic novel collections were for GI Joe very roughly? Man, I like I said, I, I purged a lot of the numbers. I wish I would have kept at That's least fair. like one spreadsheet. Because uh, um, Mark didn't was it? Uh, did Blaylock say uh, that um, those, or maybe it was Jerwell? Those were not as big a driver as issues at the time for Devil's Due. That it was a part of the equation, but it wasn't sort of mm -hmm. as much of the equation as now. Um, I don't. I think I think I remember Blaylock saying it was important part of like you know you could sell you could sell the baseline of the single issues but then you'd get the the sort of the premium bump from the, oh, the okay. reprints maybe i'm remembering it um, wrong. but but I, I i can't i can't remember the exactly the exact words that he said the downside to that was that the book market uh ordering the the trade paperbacks those were returnable at any time and mm -hmm. so when the uh 2008 thing hit and borders closed the book market is just like, here's all your books back right when everything's the worst it could be. And it was uh, like, wow, okay. All right. So for yeah. listeners and viewers, your local comic book store is getting comics non-returnable. That's what the direct market is. So the discount is higher and your local comic book store is, is stuck with all of its unsold copies. That's why you need to go to your shop and clear out your box. <laughs> Right. Don't don't leave them yeah. stuck with comics. You said you were going to buy and then you don't. But you go to a, quote, regular bookstore and any unsold copies, they ship back and they get their money back. And right. that's the fundamental difference between the sort of the book trade, the regular bookstore market and the direct market of comic book specialty shops. Sam, you, you, you said that you remember becoming the assistant publisher because that's when some big snafu happened. Yeah. And what, thinking what back was on that, this, I. I honestly don't know the answer to what should have happened. Uh, <laughs> so it was our first trade paperback of the Forgotten Realms Homeland book. Uh, it was our first uh, dip into the D&D &D stuff. And we were really excited because the books were selling great. And the Homeland book had like a crazy print run. Like, like I'm, I'm assuming around 100,000 copies of the trade paperback. But those weren't all for orders. Like we just printed enough because we knew we were going to have a sell through, and we we eventually did. But the the big headache was uh, my diamond rep called me, and he's like, "Hey, um, we've got pallets upon pallets of these books that we don't have orders for. What? Why? Why did you send these to us?" And I was like, "I don't know. Uh, it. I just basically hit enter on the previous uh, 
like print run that we've done, like coming in as the publisher, I was like, I'm just following all the guidelines I have here. Like, what did I do wrong? And apparently, you know, Diamond doesn't want to sit on all these books, but I'm like, well, they're not going to the printer. Like the printer's not holding on to them. Uh, and if you're not holding on to them, where, where are they supposed to go? Like, they're not coming here. Like we can't house them. So like that, that instance still baffles me to this day. Like everything after that, that we printed that, uh, diamond requested like they only got what they requested but <laughs> i still don't understand who was supposed to get those books in is, this instance d- is is there a scene where blaylock calls you into his office and he chastises you for making this costly mistake uh no there i mean there there isn't like if anything it was me getting off the call and like looking over at him like what the hell was that uh, <laughs> because uh, Diamond moved those books so quickly after that phone call that it was like almost a non thing. Like, you, why did we even have to have this conversation? You know. Okay, as as publisher, so we've been talking mostly about GI Joe, and you've mentioned Dungeons and Dragons and creator own stuff. As publisher, were you doing phone calls or email with with Hasbro, with Wizards of the Coast, with uh, Dreamwave? Uh, with creator-owned stuff. I'm sort of trying to figure out, because um, we know that Blaylock is like the creative head of the company, but also the business head of the company. And I'm trying to figure out what are what are some of the other things you as publisher do? So who else were you talking to and what other decisions were you making? Yeah, so I had relationship with Hasbro, but it was more uh, friendship from <laughs> just visiting and, and cons and stuff like that. I wasn't really involved on any of the uh the in-betweens with doubles due and hasbro that was mostly editorial and then blaylock i took on some editorial roles as well as a publisher so some of those creator owned books that would come through or some of the smaller licenses um that were brought to us i would be the point person for those and and then also in the same same breath an editorial view for some of those books i remember one of my favorite creator own books that came through was Lost Squad, uh, which was this little World War II team of dudes that were going to get all the cool uh, mystical artifacts back from German troops. And it was a really nice book that like went, I think, six, six issues and then got a trade. And that was, I think, it maybe one book after that. But um, that and then some of the other licenses. Um, uh, I literally just pulled into a Walmart parking lot this past weekend and pulling into the parking lot, I remembered being on the phone with the license holder for Halloween and like walking them through like what we were working on and thinking at the time, like, this is weird. I'm at Walmart trying to go inside and I'm on this call right now with the guy that owns Halloween, like making sure that everything's good with him on what we're doing with his title. You know, did did Devils do make Halloween comics? We did. Yeah. Yeah, we did. We did Chucky which uh, I think specifically we were allowed to do Chucky, but not Child's Play um, because of some rights holding thing. Uh, We did Halloween. Uh, I feel like we did more horror than I'm remembering right now because we had a horror title that is still going. It's not a Dell's Do, but that Hack Slash book, it was one of our books. And like it was a perfect pairing for all these horror titles where the, the lead of that book was like the final girl that survives. So she goes and hunts down all these slashers. So it, we, we sort of became like a mini hub for horror comics for, for a bit. Lic- licensed horror stuff. 
Going back to something you said at the beginning about the flyer for the internship. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, well, you won't write G.I. Joe comics, you'll learn the ins and outs of publishing. So mm-hmm. it, it sounds like it's safe to say that you did. Are there, are there ins and outs of publishing that you learned in your years at Devil's Do that benefited you in your jobs after or that you haven't quite been able to sort of make use of? I, I, I credit Devil's Do for teaching myself and, and, and in some sense, my wife as well, uh, how to run our business on like a shoestring budget. Like we know how to get by on like next to nothing and still have a presence and, and be known. Uh, so that, I mean, Devil's Do was a scrappy company, you know, like we were, we were there in the top four for however long we were doing Joe, but you know, like get by on what you can and like do what you can with what you got. It, it, it really instilled that in me. And I definitely use that to this day. You know, um, I do, I do like that. Um, what what you just mentioned the, the flyer and like learn the ins and outs of publishing it should have said learn them and then when you're done forget them because like i don't like i didn't want to hold on to any of that you know like by the time you leave any job you're just like done with it and luckily like where i went next i didn't really have to like worry about any of that stuff anymore you know i didn't stay in the comics realm were you in taking over the publishing job one of the things that's interesting to me about comics is is paper paper stock Mm-hmm. and and ink right and the actual saturation or saturation levels like the actual specs and i don't really mm-hmm. know anything about it but i can sometimes look at a comic and i'll say i don't think this is the right paper for this coloring or i'll no. say or i'll say i think i think this color i think these colors looked better on the colorist's monitor than they do on oh, this paper yeah. um did you ever go to the printer did you ever uh like trouble troubleshoot any of that we, we didn't, we had visits from our printer every now and then, like when we were re-upping our contracts, like they would come into town. We printed a lot in Canada. Uh, and then near the end, we did some printing in China, but we, we learned the hard way about like, you know, shipping by boat for books. And it's like, when there's orders, it's like, you have no answer. And there's a, <laughs> a boat somewhere that has all these books that everybody's waiting for. The, the contrast being that if you do it by plane, you know, when it's coming, but it's much more expensive. My God. Yeah. And like what we're printing over there is probably like, like all the omnibuses, like, so the heavy hardbound stuff. And it's like, there's no way we can uh, freight these through air. You know, one of my favorite memories of uh, the printer coming to visit us, like when we were just like having a meet and greet and like talking about renewing our contract with them, he came in and we, uh, Josh and I were in an office with them and we were just talking about like, well, you know, like, like any business, like we're looking at other options for printing price being the number one uh, selling point for us. And uh, the rep from that company said, well, you know, uh, you guys haven't been doing self covers. You could switch to self covers and save a ton on every issue. And we are like, what now? No, no, no self covers. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's where it happened. Okay. Uh, I, I wonder if you could see what issue it started on Sam, or if we even Sam, tell everyone what a self cover is. Uh, it's when you're no longer using cardstock for the cover, which is the uh, this section here, the front and back, and then you just use the first page to print your cover on. You, you, use, you see, use the same interior, paper, the same paper stock as the interior yeah. pages for the cover. Yeah. <laughs> and I, honestly, looking at this, I don't know if we did self covers to Joe. I don't I think, think you, Joe, I don't think you did. 
Yeah. No, that might've been for some of our, our own books. Uh, listeners and viewers, um, if you have gotten uh, a, a lot of free comic book day comics uh, oh, yeah. in the last couple of years are printed with self covers, when you hold them, they just seem a little less robust. They're just a little flimsier. Uh, and that goes also for the the Halloween giveaway that Diamond and Penguin Random House does. And there was a brief point in uh, like 1996 or so when Gemstone was doing the Disney Comics license. This is during the original run of Don Rosa's Eisner award-winning Life and Times of Scrooge McDuck. And the original issues, some of them are printed on self covers because the company was trying to keep from having to raise cover prices. And so it's this comic on like newsprint and the cover stock is newsprint and it, it doesn't have a great feeling when you read it it doesn't last as long either you know like uh, for archiving your books that's not great yeah and if 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 when you hold a comic if if you are aware of your hand ever so slightly perspiring most comics can <laughs> take a little bit of that and self-covers cannot you just immediately know that the bottom of your comic is just a little wavy, a little, a little lumpy. My hands are very dry. <laughs> How dare you? How dare you? Uh, in the same vein, uh, that's when we probably started doing these prestige covers, the collector edition covers, which would be uh, a thicker cardstock than a normal cover uh, so that we could charge more. And it was just because it was, I mean, it was different art, you know, so you're buying a collector piece of the art, but right. you're also paying for the thicker cardstock that we were using on these. This is what DC Comics has been doing in, in 2021, 2022, 2023, where the A cover is like $3.99 or $4.99, and then the B cover is a different drawing printed on cardstock, and it's a dollar more. And oftentimes the logo is much, much uh, smaller. This uh, this was $8.95. Oh, it's a double issue, though. It's 48 pages. So that has something to do with it, too. At what point are you starting to suggest that you might write a story or getting really anxious that you want to write a story, but you can't because you're sort of an editor and sort of the publisher? Yeah, I don't think that I ever really um, raised that flag until that special missions happened because they were looking for writers. Uh, the first thing that I wrote was bios in the back of Master and Apprentice Volume 1. So Jer was... Master and Apprentice book, uh, he was compiling it. Like he was putting a bunch of fun stuff together for the for the trade, like all the extras and bonus and stuff. And he's like, "Well, I want to do like file card stuff in the back." So that was that was sort of the beginning of like the data desk, like where I got to do the data desk. Like we'd already done the battle files like early on with the the main series originally, but then when they came to the the bios that he wanted written, he he said that like he was going to do a couple characters, but he he didn't want to bother with the others or didn't have time to do the others. And they're like, Hey, Sam. And this, this was probably still when I was doing web store stuff when the master and apprentice came out. Uh, so I was writing bios over there and that, in that little desk filled with all the stock for web store orders. <laughs> and then when America's elite data desk came out, that's when I was assistant publisher by that point. And it's hard for me to remember. I know if I sat here and, and read them, I could tell you which ones I wrote, but this was me and the editor, Michael Sullivan going through and writing all these. And I just, I remember the biggest, uh, the one that made me the most nervous was Roadblock, like writing history stuff for Roadblock. Like there's, there's obviously a wealth of knowledge out there for these characters, but like compiling it and like adding new stuff to make it our version was, 
nerve-wracking to say say the least for a roadblock. What was your working relationship with Mike O'Sullivan? Uh, very close. Like we 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 worked very close. He ran most stories by me by that point to see if uh, I had anything to input to help out with, and then. Yeah, we we did the special missions Brazil together. He wrote the uh, the backup story, which is the shipwreck and Cover Girl, which oddly enough got the uh, the cover. <laughs> well, let's, so this was this was my revenge on that. <laughs> so so Michael Sullivan wrote the, the backup story, which was eight pages long, and my story was the lead in, which I think was twenty eight to thirty pages. And then when it came for solicitations for Diamond for the for the direct copy, he was like, "Oh well, I I just got this image made of shipwreck and and cover girl for the for the cover." I'm like, "Oh, that's cool. That's that's the backup story and your story, <laughs> but okay." But at the time, I I commanded the print runs, and I was I had a, a a lead on like what we could do for con covers or this this one that's on on right now is the web store cover. So I was like, all right, well, we're doing a small print run of a web store cover and it's going to be my team and it's going to be more expensive, uh, very small print run, and people are going to hunt for this one now. And it, it, secondary market, it's it's up there. And this, the, uh, this, this yeah. Brazil cover with the green background, is this supposed to look like a paperback book with the with some so scratches or shine on the left and right? Yeah, yeah. That that so this was Sean Dove designing this for me. Um and I feel like this is just where he was at, at this point in time, design wise. He's like, let's make it look worn. I'm like, oh, okay. I just, I just care about these characters getting on the cover. And so he was, <laughs> he was pulling uh, the data desk images for this and repainting them, uh, just changing the color to to match the the mission Brazil stuff. But wetsuit, wetsuit, as you see in the back there, his legs, he wasn't drawn in the uh, data desk files with legs. He he was drawn swimming. So like he had the flippers on and everything, but we needed him standing on land. That's why he's pushed to the back and he has America's elite Flint's legs <laughs> just to match, give him a gray and match. So there's, there's a, there's like a, a gap in the schedule or there's an opportunity in the schedule for a, for an issue for something. And you yeah, say, and Hey, I, I want to write something. Yeah. And I, I think this was the second to last. I think the last special missions was Cobra. Uh, and this was the last one that was sitting on our board at the time, and it didn't have a writer attached to it. And it, at that point, it would have just been special missions book this month. And I was like, hey, uh, I don't know why, but we haven't done Brazil yet. And there, there's already characters to plug into this one. So this one's like half written. Wait, you know? let's wait. Let's go. Let's go back a step to, mm-hmm. to the, the first one uh, that you wrote, because you wrote you wrote pets. Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, the close relationship I had with Michael Sullivan, I wrote pets and then gave it to him. And then what was printed was what he wrote. Like his, he, he took my, my story and he's like, okay, but here's what I think it should be. And then gave me, <laughs> gave me first credit on writing. And I'm like, mm, that's not my story anymore. I, there's definitely like, you know, essence of what I did, but uh, yeah. And again, that's the backup story and it didn't get the cover for some reason. <laughs> that's was super fun though. Like it was just, you know, that was just a backup throwaway ish type thing to do. And I don't know, it, it a lot of people, <laughs> it resonated with a lot of people. We got a lot of uh, feedback on that one. Positive feedback. 
All right. So, so Brazil, did you have the, the, the operation Brazil set as a kid? Uh, not as a kid at the time that I wrote this, I did. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I miss that as, as a, as a youngster, but I, you know, first thing I did when I, I was pitching doing Brazil as special missions, I went back to Yojo and I listened to the audio recording they had on there of the tape. And I was like, Oh, this is horrible. We can't do this. It's like Baroness Cobra commander and Destro riding in a raft to grab a satellite or something like that. I was like, that's not, I, that I can't make a whole story out of that. Like that's yeah. Uh, was there so, was a brief second where you were like, we could do something about a satellite, maybe <laughs> just a bit better. Yeah. But I, I think I just wanted to uh, bring Headman in because, you know, I mean, how much had he gotten in the past like 20 years in Joe books? So it was cool to throw him down there. And I actually didn't realize at the time uh, when the book came out, like and I was I asked for like Brazilian troops and what I got was NATO troops. I didn't realize that when the book was published, like the, the guys coming in with the light blue helmets, that's that's NATO. And I was just like, cool. I had no idea. Okay, so th this is a good segue. All right, so as a kid, you had read some comics, not a ton of comics. As a Devil's Due employee, you were devouring comics and helping to make comics. And now you were writing a couple stories. So um, did you have any uh, particular requests or ideas about what, what you wanted in the art or the visual storytelling, or were you just sort of leaving it to the artists and the sort of devil do like pipeline? Yeah, there were, there were a couple, I wish I had Brazil right in front of me. Um, there were a couple things that you lay out, uh, how you visually wanted to look. If not, you just, you just say who's, who's on the page, who's saying what, you know, mm -hmm. I, what I remember is, uh, page one and, uh, page 20. Oh, here, I have the final page here that like the original artwork. So it was 25 pages. So page one and page 25, uh, I remember specific things from that, where page one, I laid it out how I wanted it to look, like with the opening scene and all that. Uh, but what Val Valentine turned in, uh, he added at the bottom all five of the dudes on the roster. And I was like, that's brilliant. Like, that's great. You're showing all their faces up front. That's I love it. So that was the one change that he made that I was like, oh, that's that's thank you very much for taking some liberties there. Uh, and then the, the thing with the last page, what's printed is much different than what was drawn because Hasbro was not happy with, let me grab it and see if I can actually show it. There's a lot of firewalls, but there in that last panel, uh, here we go. <laughs> yeah. And it, what, what's printed is cropped. So it's mostly just the hand with the helmet there. <laughs> like when it went for approval, uh, Hasbro was like, Nope, because, it's a butt. We can't have butts. Okay, this is a good segue. How would you describe, how would you characterize Devil's Do's relationship with Hasbro? Or, or if it was different over time, how did it change over time? How was it when you got there? Uh, uh, it, was, it was like a friendship when I got there. Uh, and I, I recently wrote that um, forward for the After Action Report, and I, I said working with Hasbro was like working with like a schizophrenic beast, because from any any point to the next, what was re required of us was just all over the board, and I, I dive into this in a little bit in that in that forward. But it it was like what what are they going to say no to now? You know, like 
I, I feel like do you do you remember the Simpsons episode where Burns is yelling that whoever to sh- shave their sideburns and he's just got no hair here and he still yells at him like I said get rid of those sideburns. Oh, the baseball he's, episode. Yeah, yeah. He's yeah. like I said no sideburns. He clearly has no hair. <laughs> it's like that's how it felt with Hasbro sometimes, um, uh, to the point of like getting rid of a butt on the last panel of a, a comic. You know? Okay, now not not knowing more. I would, I would ask, or I would ask, well, you were at Devil's Due for seven years. Surely the people you're working with at, at Hasbro change over time. Whereas mm-hmm. Hasbro is changing the GI Joe line, its expectations are, are changing. Are you saying that the sort of inconsistency was sort of greater than a natural progression? Oh, absolutely. Yes. But what I, what I think came with the uh, natural progression was that when you get a new brand person and no matter how cool they are with you it really depends on their relationship within Hasbro with marketing Hasbro's marketing because marketing and I'll say marketing slash legal is sort of what screws up everything cool that comes out of Hasbro uh it's it's the people that like step in and want to make a change that's not necessary just to say that they've done their job and I've seen that so many times, um, not just as Devils do, but like as a as a fan of things coming out of Hasbro, uh, as somebody who worked with Hasbro internally, uh, doing um, like that creator services work. Anytime something hit that last step, there decisions were made, and rarely was it the right decision for for what was being presented. Yeah, and, and you can ask people that you know, worked at Hasbro that came out and just bring up legal or or marketing and just, yeah, (laughs) the eyes will roll. I had a couple of examples that I can share on screen from uh, what you mentioned in the After Action report specifically. So maybe you can talk to to some of these examples. Yeah, this one was embarrassing. Like, so we had this amazing cover by Adam Hughes. I don't know if we had ever worked with Adam Hughes before this and getting him to do a cover was just, you know, like it, it was a bucket list item for so many people at devil's do like, Oh my God, we got Adam Hughes to do an amazing Baroness cover. And the notes that came back, I think originally on this one was, sorry, I've got a plane going overhead. Uh, it's too sexual with her mouth open. So as embarrassing as that was to have to go back to him and be like, Hey, there's, there's notes from the licensor, the revised cover got scrapped as well like when he closed her mouth tilted her head yep and then they were like nope still too sexy and that's i don't know if you know this but like that's whatever is going on in that person's head you know that's it's it's similar to the um uh rock posters cover we did with scarlet where she has a pair of dice in her hand and it's snake eyes and she's blowing on the dice and hasbro came back with no we get the joke she's blowing snake eyes you can't do this and it's like "Mm, that wasn't intention at all and that's weird that that's what you came up with but they're dice you blow on dice it's snake eyes because you can get snake eyes on a dice like that was not yeah so it's it's whatever was in that person's head projected onto the image that they were looking at at the time that's where we got and uh, Adam Hughes ain't cheap. No, yeah. So, <laughs> and and presumably, if you ask him to do a revision, if you ask an artist to do a revision, and they don't want to because they haven't 
scheduled that into their sort of month. And then also the cover doesn't run anyway. Maybe they don't want to work with you again in the future because they feel hey. like they're going to get jerked around. <laughs> right. And it's a shame, too, that this cover not, never got published, except it did <laughs> at IDW. Uh, what was it, like issue two, issue four or something like that? They used it as their retail incentive cover. Something yeah. like that, yeah. Wasn't so bad after all. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I actually, oh, man, this is, I don't remember who it was, but I got a call from Hasbro after, like, we had, the license was over with. We still had a relationship with them because we were still doing, I think, D&D and whatever. But I got a call from somebody on the Joe brand. And they're like, hey, can we get um, contact in- info for Adam Hughes? And I was like, <laughs> yeah, sure. Let me send you that email. Uh, and that's what it was for, was to get that cover for IDW. Yeah, so on the screen now is what Tim cranked out in an afternoon for us uh, in frustration. Everyone frustrated. Uh, us, uh, Hughes, possibly the fans, <laughs> not getting the book they had, they had hoped for. And as, as it's been mentioned, uh, instead of signing his name, he wrote sorry, uh, the same way that he signed Seely there on the cover. Mm. Also, I should add, if, uh, if a comic book is solicited with one cover and then yeah. the publisher doesn't publish the comic with that cover, even mm-hmm. though the direct market of comic book stores, comics are bought non-returnable. In that case, mm-hmm. the stores can return all unsold copies for their money back. And so that would be sort of the triple whammy where a publisher yeah. might get stung by a, yeah. a, a, a deal going wrong. And I can say that um, Joe collectors don't return their covers. So uh, we didn't see we didn't see any of these coming back. Not not to my knowledge. And that would have been I would have been the one aware of this. Hmm. We didn't get any of these books back. And I think the thing that helped us was that we weren't putting it on like a retailer incentive cover or like a more expensive book. It was going on the normal book. You know, had it been like an eight dollar like cardstock fancy like you got to order like six hundred copies to get this one. You know, like. We would have gotten those back, but luckily people were just like, all right, it's Baroness. It's in the slab. Let's move on to the next issue. <laughs> Mark, do you have another image to show or should I ask my next question? Ah. I, I had a, a couple of examples. This was, again, you mentioned in the after action report about the mm-hmm. Hasbro edict for not having weapons on the front cover. And you talked about these two right. uh, yeah. as examples. So um, as you'll see, both covers, they're just very angry and, uh, in your classic fisticuffs, uh, where the cover started originally with weapons on the cover, um, and we were told at various stages to pull the weapons. Like you can literally see Duke's hand holding a gun there. It's interesting because uh, uh, an earlier edict from Hasbro regarding GI Joe was no mushroom clouds. <laughs> um, I don't yeah. know. I think that was more related. Uh, to the cartoon and not the comic book. And I don't know that mm-hmm. one was actually written down, although I, I have a, a recollection of it. Um, which, but... is, which is strange at this point, like to, to get that sort of feedback on this cover because it's the penultimate, like right here at 35, like this second to last issue, we shouldn't have gotten that much feedback at this point. Like they, like we were out the door mm-hmm. and they were focusing on the movie and IDW at this point. So one last question on covers. Um, it, it, talking about the changing the covers reminded me of something that, that Blaylock had said, which I've not heard the background to yet, which um, was that I think it was maybe issue 36 mm-hmm. and something happened with that cover. Oh, the uh, the incentive cover. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
uh, I asked Sean Dove, who was our designer at the time, if he could pull Quick Kick from the original uh, last issue of Marvel 155, where he appeared erroneously on the cover, having been killed much earlier in the series. Uh, but he appeared on their last issue. So we pulled literally that Quick Kick off the cover of the Marvel run and threw him inside of the helicopter that is only faintly visible if you look between the uh, the logo, the America's Elite logo at the top. Is this the Herb Trimpey cover? Yes. Okay. Oh, it's a, it's, a, it's a cover swipe of the Marvel 155 where the Joes are folding up the flag and behind yeah. them is the helicopter. But most of the helicopter is blocked by the logo. Yeah, let's see how close I can get here to this. Um, is, it, is it his eyes peek, peering out yes. over the R, yep. the letter R yep. from America's yeah. Elite? So that's quick kick hiding there. Yeah. <laughs> and he was pulled from the, the 155 cover. Yeah. Um, Sam, can you talk about the end of Devil's Do's G.I. Joe relationship with Hasbro? Um, at what point is it like, you know, it's a year or three years in, the license mm -hmm. is going to be up and the company is presumably starting to plan for like a pitch for re-upping or do you know that the movie is on the horizon? What is the feeling at Devils Do, and what's the talk? Right. Well, I can I can start by saying that like when we do, did lose the Joe license, and we were in the end of publishing the Joe comic, that uh, the staff changed dramatically internally at Devils Do. Just meaning like there's a lot of people that were let go just because we no longer had like our flagship book, and the company couldn't sustain as many people as we had on staff. I think. At our height, we might have been like 12 people in the studio. And then after that, like maybe down to six, you know. Um, so I, I took on a lot more roles after that. Uh, I don't think I was doing web store. I think we still had somebody running in the web store for us. But uh, I, I moved over to designing and doing a lot of the uh, art direction on like the production side, like for building the books and getting them to the printer. Um, so when the... Um, the renewal was coming. I don't know how often it was. I wasn't involved in that. Uh, it was something that Blaylock did. Uh, but when the renewals happened, all I know is that previously, before the time that we lost the license, uh, it was it was more of them just sending over the contract to be signed. I don't know if that was an annual thing or like every couple years or whatever. But I know that, that when this one came up, it was red flag time because they were like, um, Hasbro came back and they said, uh, prepare a pitch because the movie's coming out and we are going to shop the license. And we we're like, okay. So I don't remember who all went, but Hasbro had everybody out there in a weird, awkward, uh, everybody sit in the waiting room type thing. Uh, and, and Blaylock went out there with uh, probably Tim Seeley and possibly Michael Sullivan or Mark Powers. And we did our pitch and found out later that uh, we no longer had the license, which for us, the timing was off because we had just advertised uh, however many issues into and had just published issue one of our year-long event for World War III. So we had to uh, appeal to Hasbro and just be like, hey, you guys approved this 12-issue like year-long story arc that we have just begun publishing and have solicited like maybe four or five issues out. And they're like, okay, so we went back and signed like an amend amendment to our contract, giving us the right to publish just those 12 issues 
and only one collected edition, which is why World War III was an omnibus and not multiple trades throughout the year. Um, they just wanted to clean it up as possible or as quickly as possible. And luckily, like it all wrapped up right before any of the uh, IDW stuff was slated to happen to coincide with like the movie launch in 2009. Uh, I don't remember when our last issue came out. Did, did you guys? Oh, I have 36 here. Um, this was June of 2008. And I believe, if I remember correctly, the, the omnibus followed in stores the week after issue 36 yeah like, yeah like the same month or the next month yeah yeah like almost immediately um so it was just like yeah get it get that done and wrap it up and what's a shame is <laughs> uh, arguably and in a lot of people's uh minds the best storyline we'd done <laughs> was world war three and it seemed like we had just hit in a really good stride <laughs> with the storytelling and, and the art and everything and it's like all right we'll wrap it up so were there any changes in the in the in that stretch of issues now that you didn't have uh, a longer deal with Hasbro or that the momentum was different or the sort of emotion emotional support uh, was um, different I I don't think too much changed I I feel like I did, I did take on a little bit more on the approval side uh from editorial like I I think I was the one submitting things for approval, but I, I, I don't think too much had changed in, in that aspect. It didn't really feel like, you know, like we were being abandoned, like we were still, you know, part, part of the Hasbro family uh, at that time. But I mean, you, it, it's hard not to be doom and gloom at that point when you know that you're saying goodbye to something that you loved working on and, you know, you're a fan of. And I, I'm trying to remember, uh, I know this was cut short too. And this was like, such a huge like hit for us like people loved this book and having hama back working on this this one came out october 2007 so yeah we wrapped we wrapped this one up way earlier than it should have been and only got one trade paper back out which i think excludes the last couple issues yeah this is for the audio only listeners this is storm shadow uh, oh, yeah. by larry hammer i think i think there might have been a maybe a six issue trade uh, and there was maybe a couple of extra issues that never made it into a trade. Yeah, I think six or seven issues, and then maybe one didn't make it. The collection has five issues, and the series went seven issues. Okay. Um, you said it got cut short. Sam, were th was there anything written or drawn for an eighth issue or beyond? Um, certainly there was. Uh, with Michael Sullivan editing this book, uh, but Larry, Larry's way of writing is very in the moment. Um, he, he doesn't, he, it's not like a traditional script comes through right away. It's, it's more of an outline. So I'd say like, if anything for that series, there was a broad outline of what was going to transpire and everything else was just up in Hama's head, you know? Yeah. But that, that was one of the titles that like we had to end, like mm -hmm. we weren't allowed to continue that one. Whereas World War Three, uh, America's Elite we had promised 12 more issues. So that one continued. In talking about the end of GI Joe, weren't, weren't you the guy the, the behind this devil's due team only uh, super rare exclusive cover from 36? Yeah. Um, so this, yeah, it was, I was part of this team, but I'd say I, Mikey, 
Michael Sullivan was the the person that uh, spearheaded it. He so Mikey drew all the uh, little background heads. Uh, oh. Mark Powers drew the Colton up front, and then the little corner guy there is uh, a little <laughs> Blaylock done in uh, grunt style. But this was done by Mike Bear. Yeah. Uh, so this issue, <clears throat> I was actually just talking to Blaylock about it. This issue was planned as a surprise for both the staff who who have, who had all worked on the book since we started and uh, friends at, at Hasbro to get some of these. And it was going to be given away at like a celebration, like sort of like a send off to uh, G.I. Joe. Like we were going to rent a space at a bar. I'm saying we're going to because we did not. We were going to like have a little party at a, at a bar, like just down the block from the studio. Uh, and at the time, Devil's Do had a president, uh, Blaylock, and we also had a CEO. Uh, this book, I didn't realize who it was, uh, but this book was cleared by the CEO to do, to go ahead and print it. And we were going to do this party. And he was the one that was okaying everything on my end to make this happen. I didn't know that until this after action report book came out. Blaylock texted me. He's like, what is this book? So for however many years from this being created until that book came out, I didn't remember which one of them okayed it, but the other one didn't find out about it. So the CEO said, yes, let's do it. Here's the book. Here's the money, whatever, like make it happen. And then uh, because that party never happened, oh, <laughs> there's something there too. Uh, that party never happened because there was a split in the company between that CEO and Blaylock. Uh, there was a falling out. And the CEO left and created that other company, like split off with that creative services company. And uh, so there was a pretty bad, like split down the middle of, of staff at Devil's Due. And so it was, it was a rough time. Not only like did we lose the book, we had already lost staff, but then at this point, the company was kind of like uh, cracked in a, in a sense. It was a, a weird little divorce that happened. And then this book went into a closet a couple copies got shipped out to people that like Mikey took care of, like that were on his list to, to get books out to. So like a couple Hasbro people and maybe like uh, somebody that helped us with reference or something like that. Uh, so book copies of this book leaked out for sure. And I can tell you that like this copy right here is for Blaylock because he still does not have this book. <laughs> and like um, when he found out, he was like, can you find me one? I was like, I, I think I have a couple. What's the what's the is the print run of this smaller than a sort of then usual Devils Do store? We did 50. 50. 50 copies because that's 50. all that was required. Yeah, it wasn't being sold. Right. It was just being handed out to people as a as a gift, and uh, I I think it's written in in the after action report, but it's succumbed to not only a flood in one of the Devils Do studios, uh, but also a fire at the warehouse that I had mentioned earlier. So there are so, few, there are fewer than fifty. Absolutely. Like so, I'd say like uh, maybe 15 to 20 copies that exist. So this, this might be the rarest GI Joe comic book. Oh, yeah. Uh, that one outside of this one that I can discuss a, a little bit. So this is uh, issue two of our first volume of GI Joe versus Transformers. Uh, and it's issue two, as you can see up here in the corner, but probably can't see that well with my crappy camera. There we go. Number two, and many people own this comic, but they own it as issue three. And so this book. Uh, this is a misprint. 
Um, well, yes, it was ordered to be pulped. Okay. It was ordered by, to be pulped by Hasbro. Uh, so this was printed for the Transformers Collector Convention, uh, I think like 2004, 2003, 2003. And the back cover ad did not sit well with Hasbro. This was one of our own titles at too, Devil's Due. Too sexy. Yeah. yeah. So when they got their printed copies, and like I said, uh, previously uh not on this podcast but i think maybe in that book that i wasn't the publisher at the time so i don't know how the printed copy is the first time they saw this ad Mm. but when they got this ad in-house they're like nope you can't you can't do that and luckily it was just our convention cover so we had time to reprint on the following issue and have it in time for the convention and that Um, that would have been a what would a print run have been for a convention exclusive Man, I feel like. Sorry, I keep asking you these any, number of questions. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like, like this would have been anywhere five hundred like or thousand. Five hundred to ten thousand. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Right um, in there. So there's there's plenty of these with issue three on the cover, but there's oh sorry, there's only a handful out there with issue two that when it was ordered to be pulped, I still uh, set copies aside for our archive at Double Stew. So, um, do you remember anything, GI Joe? that was in development, which now wasn't going to go forward because Devil's Due didn't get the license renewal. Um, yeah, I. <laughs> this is such a weird memory. I remember uh, Michael Sullivan and I at the time coming up with a book that we wanted to to run past Josh. And like, so we laid it out. We We knew who we wanted to have write it. And we were going to ask the... Uh, our contact at Hasbro to write the first arc. Uh, so whoever the the brand manager was for Joe at the time that we were going to for approvals, we were going to take this book to them and be like, do you want to write this Joe book for us? Uh, we thought it was like home run. No problem. This is great. I remember walking into Blaylock's office with Mike and <laughs> going to pitch this book and Josh most likely having just hung up with Hasbro getting the news that we weren't renewing the license and he's like, I don't know. I don't want to hear any of this. <laughs> we were like, okay. Like we didn't fully understand what was going on at the time, but I, I know the feeling in the room. I know the look he had, and I know that we did not get to pitch this book fully. But luckily this book did come out in a sense uh, from IDW on their tail end. It was the, the cartoon version of G.I. Joe, which I thought would be such a good idea to have somebody from Hasbro write the cartoon version. Uh, the book eventually did come out. It was the Saturday Morning Heroes book that okay. IDW did. Uh, um, a version, I mean that, a version of this concept did come yes. out. Yeah. So, like when I saw that announced, I was, I was, I wasn't angry. I was like, "Thank God they finally did it!" Like this has been sitting on the table for how long? You know? Okay. Like, so you, you, you guys were about to pitch a, a Devil's Due comic based in the animated yeah. '80s continuity. Yep. Yeah. Um, I think I think you have said this next sentence indirectly, and I I wanted to say it and sort of get your. Um, so it sounds like, uh, so you have said that um, in not getting the license renewal, Devils Do became a smaller company. It went from maybe mm-hmm. twelve people to six people, and mm-hmm. and it was um, publishing fewer books. So if if I'm if I'm hearing you right, what you're saying is you had this flagship comic, GI Joe which was mm-hmm. your best selling comic and yep. with it came a bump from graphic novel collections and any spin-offs or or special issues uh like mm-hmm. exclusives for conventions or the website and so devils do if you're used to selling like 
20 or 22,000 copies of America's Elite. And that helps Devil's Do fund three or five or 10 other comics, right? Which also have to make their mm -hmm. own money, but they're going to be selling right. it like 3,000 or 9,000 or 15,000. Right. Without G.I. Joe, the company cannot pay for as many employees and just does not have a big enough pipeline to make as many books. And so the company must contract because its biggest seller goes away. Right. Yeah. Um, and in that instance, a lot of people went from staff to like they left. They, they were no longer staff or salary. They went to like a, a freelance or a vendor. Okay. The people that did want to stay on. There were people that said, nope, that's I'm good. I'm out. You know, and that that's fair, you know. Um, when the option is either, you know, you're now a vendor or you could walk. Some some people walked. All right. So you're at Devil's Due through the end of 2010. Mm -hmm. And you start with uh, Kanoichi eight months later in August of 2011. So do you remember a final week or a day for you at Devil's Due? Um, I, I hear that there's a, yeah. a special shelf of toys that was in your office at Devil's Day. <laughs> yeah, I I have a photo of Josh using a minivan. I don't know if it was his van at the time or rental or whatever, but bringing this to my house from his uh, studio basement where Devil's Due was set up at the time. Just a photo of this in the back of his van uh, leaving there. I, I hate this shelf now, by the way. <laughs> Like it was made specifically for that cubicle, but all right. I so what? What's your final month or week or day like it does um, do? I think the thing that when I saw the writing on the wall was uh, Comicsology, and our partner with Comicsology, where they were like, "Oh well, yeah, we want your entire back catalog of stuff digitized." And like at that point, we maybe were publishing like two titles through Diamond, and my main job at that point was changing all of our uh, digital files to be what Comixology needed. And then looking at our server and going, well, there's X amount of books on this server. And me finally, finally realizing, like, when I get to this end, I think that's the end for me, <laughs> you know? Like, the books being published, you don't need one other person in the company, you know? And, and the company at that time was whatever freelance people were doing editorial and then the art and all that. I like how I just breeze over the creative part, <laughs> all that stuff, all that art and crap. Uh, but, you know, like Blaylock, me, uh, whatever intern we still had at the time, and then vendor, or, um, freelance uh, editorial, you know. So not doing that many books, it makes no sense for me to be sitting there anymore past digitizing those books that I did. So what do you do for the next eight months before you started with Kunoichi? I don't think I've ever been asked that. Uh, can you explain this gap in your resume? Sorry, I, it sounds like I'm, <laughs> I, I'm so sorry. I'm not trying to accuse you of anything. And if the answer I, is, if the answer is, I just sat on the couch and like watched TV. Like you had been at a job for uh, seven years. That is that is an excellent answer. No, sat, just no. sat on the couch. I do. I do want to like figure out how to form this meme for that that question, like, can you explain this gap in your resume? And just so that the person replying is like, oh, you want to know how to do it? You want to know how to not work? You know, like, <laughs> I can tell you. I think, um, I think you and Mark should go into business making mugs. Mark's is going to have this parabola and yours is going to say, can you explain this gap in your resume? Yeah. Uh, are we looking at LinkedIn? Is that? Yeah. I, I switched to selling stuff on eBay full time. 
Like I just, I was going to thrift stores and, and picking up whatever I could find that I knew. Like I've, I've always sold, like I mentioned earlier, my wife and I back in the late nineties, we'd, we'd go to toy shows and stuff and set up. So we had like a storage unit full of crap that we were always sort of eBaying. But then like when I didn't have a doubles deal, I was like, well, I'm just going to do this until I figure out what's next. And just sat on our back porch, putting stuff on eBay all day, you know, which maybe, maybe you had some rare devils do stuff to sell. I did, but honestly, at that time, was not worth putting on eBay. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I do remember. I, I, I did let one of these number two twos go at some point. I do remember <laughs> that. And that that was at a Joe Con, though. I, I remember selling one of those. Okay, so going back to uh, this sort of so the the second thing you said in this interview was like, oh, Devils Do had this other company, Konoichi, which was Creative mm-hmm. Services, which did stuff for Hasbro. So. I sort of understand what creative services is, and I sort of don't. So, so did Kunoichi started with that sort of schism, that divorce in Devils Do, like around the time that the, or was it earlier? It was, it was much earlier. Okay. Uh, they were at the first offices that I was at, which was one of the places on Ravenswood. So that had to have been around two thousand five, two thousand. Well, when did when did the twenty fifth anniversary Joe's kick off? That was two thousand seven. Yeah. So Kenoshi existed before that, but that was our first big like Hasbro role was was working on a lot of the uh, the, the packaging. I'm looking up here because I have a lot of that stuff. When when you there. say packaging, you mean you mean how the how the paper stuff is going to get printed, the actual card? You mean the plastic? Do you mean like layout of the figure? The design. The design. Um, yes, the the design uh, for 25th anniversary. It was it was mostly just supplying artwork. Later, we got into other products where we did everything like uh I, I think one of the biggest ones was the uh the stanley spider-man san diego comic-con exclusive it's just like a, a spider-man body but it has stanley's head and like the whole box is just comic art so like we were responsible for everything on that box and that was like one of our first big pieces for them but so so Kinoichi, i this is from my viewpoint i i didn't start the company uh, like i said the ceo uh, at devil's do started this company it, it just made sense because we had the relationship there with Hasbro. Like we already had the ends. Uh, and then we also had the relationship with uh, this giant pool of artists, you know? So it just made sense to come to them and be like, Hey, we have this other service we can provide for you, you know? And luckily it, it worked out quite, quite a bit. Uh, I can say when that split happened, which was probably right at the end of world war three around 2008, I was working for both companies at that point. When the split happened, I had to make a decision. <laughs> I could I could no longer work for Kenoichi and Devil's Do just because of how bad that had been at the time. Uh, so I had to make my choice, and I was like, "Well, I'm gonna go with Devil's Do. That's why I, you know that's why I'm here." You know, uh, and then however long uh, gap in your resume, sitting on my back porch selling eBay stuff, and then getting the the call from Brian who used to be my intern at Devil's Do calling to hire me at Kenoichi and they're like hey we, we want you to to come on and so what Kenoichi was uh was a four person team outside of the person who owned it the uh the guy who created it he he wasn't really hands on he was just there to run the business we were there to run the projects but the four of us were all creative managers like project managers but like obviously more on the creative side because that's what the business is 
So you just had four project managers sitting in a room running all these various projects and then pulling in all these artists. Like rarely was anybody in-house with us. Like all of the work was done remotely, supplied to us, and then we were uh, on calls with Hasbro constantly. And you're describing design and illustration. Are you also mm-hmm. describing copywriting? We didn't do too much copy, but one of the larger things when we moved out of packaging, uh, like we were still doing packaging, but they started pulling on us more for internal pitches uh, at Hasbro. So we did a lot of work for people building decks for pitches that projects that never saw the light of day, like tons and tons of uh, like, oh, we're going to reboot Mask now. And it's like, okay, well, we're going to put all these images together and Photoshop all these assets that you send us into something that like looks cool for, for mask now. And most of our time working on internal pitches was getting an email from somebody saying like, Hey, I'm walking from this part of Hasbro down the hall to the other part. Can you make these revisions on this deck and upload the new one by the time I get into that room for that meeting? And it's like, <laughs> yep, that's what we're doing. Yeah. Just a lot of last minute, like uploading that stuff. And when you say pitch deck, you mean like a slideshow, a PDF? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Stuff that they just, they'd have their screen up, shared on, on whatever screen in the room and be pitching it internally or just fine tuning whatever license they wanted to bring life back into. Um, There's a lot of uh, pitches for, because the team we got moved to eventually uh, was their whole, their, their whole deal was looking for future uh, partnerships. Like how can we integrate technology with partnerships with Hasbro? So there was a lot of us making fake like game app screens and stuff like that after a while. I've heard you mention that you, or I've heard written somewhere that, that you worked on some of the file cards for, for, for GI Joe. Is that, is that right? And is that connected to, to this Kanoichi operation? Uh, I did, I did not, I did not write on any file cards. No. Yeah. That okay. might've just been something uh, misled from the, uh, the battle file stuff or the um, data desk. And I've also I've seen I've seen on um, uh, Nerd Ratio mm-hmm. this um, th- that you've spoken to to them. Unfortunately, the podcast is no longer available, so I don't know what you you said. But I think the focus was sort of talking about some of this um, GI Joe concept art from from that kind of uh, just post Venom versus Valor era. I can I can is, tell was, you was that connected to all of that. It, this wasn't for Kanoichi. No, this was just us getting stuff at Devil's Due to see what was coming up if we wanted to incorporate that into books. And I, I can tell you most of the Nerd Ratio episode was me and them just going like, oh, this is cool. Because <laughs> like, I had no insight into like what this was. We just we had it supplied to us. How involved was the relationship between Devil's Due and Hasbro to incorporate G.I. Joe product? into the Devil's Due comic. And the reason why I ask is that it has other, one or two other people have described it as not very involved or not very active. And, mm-hmm. and, and I sort of thought about it and I'm like looking through some Devil's Due issues like, well, there's that new helicopter and there's that new figure, but I compare that to uh, maybe, maybe the hand gesture should be this, yes. right? Marvel <laughs> and uh, Marvel and, and Hasbro in the eighties and the, the, right. the television commercials. So, can you talk about that that back and forth? Um, so I'm going to echo that, that it was not, like they, they weren't on us to do anything of the sort. 
However, when it did happen, it was more along the lines of like whatever artists or whoever seeing the new Joe stuff and being like, that's cool. I want to include that. It was also viewed as like, sort of like, thank you from Hasbro. Like, thanks for putting in that new helicopter or whatever. Like, almost like you didn't have to do that. But like, we appreciate that you you did that. I remember a, a specific instance, uh, how involved we got in the um, the barrel roll and, you know, all these guys. Blackout. Uh, blackout and barrel roll and then bomb strike just because we were friends with Dwight. Like Dwight was one of our favorite people at Hasbro. And it was like, yeah, we, we're going to feature him all over the place. So so he got he got top billing when we could, you know. OK. Yeah. And can I ask about a specific example that um, we noticed the, that Chris Lai worked on the Arishikagi Showdown mini mm-hmm. manga digest with, with Josh Blaylock and mm-hmm. then went on to do a lot of the design work for Sigma 6, but then also did the comic book for Devil's Due. So was that, was that a relationship between... You know, Hasbro yeah. just finding him, or, they, or was did, it a devil's due into Hasbro? Did they just poach that guy? Yeah, they, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's that's like go do the best thing you could do, which that would be working on the Sigma Six stuff. You know, yeah, Chris has Chris has gone on to create his own studio, and it's it's doing phenomenal stuff to this day. Like it's amazing stuff. But yeah, it, it Chris uh, he most likely was an art intern at Devil's Due, if I'm remembering correctly. And then, like, once you find out that, like, oh, you already, you're already to a point where you could be working in the comics, that's immediately we're going to pull you over, you know? Like, that's why you worked on the, the Tales of Rashikagi and the Sigma 6 stuff. And then, it, it, can I guess what the next sentence might be that to, for, for um, variety in one's resume or for uh, a different pay scale if one is drawing comics, sure. but then a toy company mm-hmm. says, hey, do you want to do fewer designs for more money? Maybe you go yeah. to a toy company. Yeah, absolutely. And I believe this has happened on Transformers where a couple artists who were doing work for Dreamwave on Transformers started mm-hmm. doing box art or sort of interior art of Transformers at Hasbro and then did a lot more of that. And it's sort of anonymous. You don't get, you don't, you don't get to sign your name. But right. that, that sort of more work or steadier work or it, it pays better or it's... Maybe it yeah. pays the and same, it, but is easier because it's not, you know, one page a day, one page a day. And I would assume that that's the uh, the goal, even if it's not like in the forefront of their mind. Like the goal is to to move on to to work like that versus the the grunt work of what comics is. Like I I have firsthand seen people get burned out <laughs> drawing comics uh, forty hours a week. It's it's it it can take a toll, you know. So. Moving on to something like that, that it's more in the creative realm. I, 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 I assume that's what you would want to move on to. You know, having no art <laughs> uh, inclinations myself, I can't really speak to that though. So, if Konochi was doing um, some GI Joe stuff for Hasbro uh, for or or after the 25th anniversary line, was mm-hmm. was that company involved in any of the pack-in comics? that were coming with two packs or three packs, packs of figures around that time? They weren't, to, to my knowledge. I, I don't remember doing anything like that. And that could have been happening before I was fully involved with Konoichi. Okay. Uh, what uh, I do remember is when they did the uh, the comic pack, the Devil's Due comic pack, they um Oh, is this the reprinted. fan? Is this the fan yeah. voted? The one with 
Scarlet or uh, um, Cover Girl and Spirit on the cover. Yeah, they straight reprinted the issue uh, without changing the logo, and that really bummed me out because uh, that was when we were printing through Image. Mm-hmm. So the the Devil's Due fan uh, uh, book or issue or figures came out with the Image logo on it. I'm like that. <laughs> Right, you were okay. You, you were no longer publishing through Image. Devil's Due was yeah. now its own company, and that right. Image logo should have been replaced with the Devil's Due logo. Yeah, because as of like issue twenty five, which was well before the twenty fifth anniversary stuff, we had the Devil's Due logo on there. Right, or twenty six. Yeah, yeah. That that bummed me out personally. I, I, I'm assuming more than just me at the at Devil's Due, but I'm sure Image yeah. appreciated the little little advertisement <laughs> in in toy I, stores everywhere. I doubt they ever noticed. <laughs> yeah. Is is there uh, anything we've we've not talked to you or asked you about um, Devil's Due that um, that we that we really should have by now? <laughs> uh, no. Um, yeah, I feel like we touched on everything. There's this. I, I don't know if I've mentioned this recently or publicly anywhere. The core. Tell us about this. Remind, remind our listeners yeah. and viewers what the core is and talk about <laughs> this deal, if you would. Yeah, the core. That was always G.I. Joe's number one knockoff or, or uh, bootleg toy company. So like when your your grandma went to uh, <laughs> the store and you were asking for G.I. Joe's, she came back with the core because they were cheaper and they looked the same to her. But to, to most Joe collectors or Joe fans... Not, not what we wanted. And and the company the company is Lenard. Lenard, yeah. Uh, so we, after we lost the Joe license, this was sort of like our, <laughs> not fu, but like, um, we still like this sort of sort of storyline, and we know that this is there. We know that the Joe fans will understand. Like they'll get it. Like they'll get why why we're doing this book. Unfortunately, issue number uh, one never came out. This is issue zero. So we uh, the sales did not warrant an issue number one. I know that it was written. Some of it was probably drawn, but uh, we never went past this issue zero. And clearly, right off, right off the bat, we were like, okay, we're not with Hasbro anymore. We can do whatever we want. And Leonard was like, yeah, do it. Go for it. So it was uh, <laughs> as much uh, gore and and nudity as we could get away with in a, in a comic. I'm going to, I'm going to read, uh, the, uh, the solicit, uh, uh, written by Rick Remender, uh, drawn yeah. by Jason Phillips in an age of super terrorism. No military force is better equipped to put global threats out of commission than the core. Even their toughest soldiers will be tested. However, when the organization known as the Marauders sets their sights on black hole, mach- on black hole machine capable of wiping out continents. <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> I can think of uh, one man. team that's better equipped. <laughs> um, I, I remember, so they, they sent us all of their like uh, style guide stuff for the core. And it was when this, this new series was c- kicking off, like they had like, um, they had finally jumped to what Hasbro tried with GI Joe in 2001, the, uh, the non O ring figures, which brought in like a whole new cast of characters to the core. And so they sent us their, their style guide for that. And uh, I still, to this day, if someone says something about a ninja, I call them a, a Niha because one of the character descriptions said he had uh, Niha like abilities. Like they misspelled the word ninja for his ninja like abilities, and he was just a Niha. And I was like, all right, this dude's a Niha from now on. I note that uh, the core issue zero uh, is released the same month as 
uh, IDW's GI Joe issue zero. Um, <laughs> Do you have the sales numbers on those? I don't. I could try and find them, but I, I, if we if we know from you that there was no issue one, I think we can guess <laughs> a certain ceiling. Uh, Sam, I think you've already mentioned that you were reading the IDW GI Joe. So mm-hmm. can you talk about sort of now shifting from fan to professional back to fan? And and GI Joe keeps chugging along, sort of without mm-hmm. you and and your the company where you were. So you read the IDW issues. Yeah. So I, I don't know how long I, I, I stuck with it. And I, and I can't tell you because I've since sold all of those off. Like I, I no longer have any of my IDW. I think I do still have however many issues of Cobra, like maybe that first miniseries with Chuckles. Because again, that was like one of the best things I've ever read uh, in the Joe world. Uh, I, I just know that it, like it died off after a certain point and I just got sort of disillusioned with it. And I, I'm sure like, I fell off and a lot of other people fell off, but every time they'd reboot with something cool and something special, I'd jump in for one or two issues and then just like, nah, this is not, this is not for me. I fully intend to skybound all the way, you know, mm-hmm. like I'm, I'm going to stick <laughs> with, with images as far as I can. Um, Cause I, I'm really excited about this, the shared universe and seeing where, where they're going to take it. I don't know. I, I've got high hopes for this, this new series. And and when this the Cobra series was was coming out, you were still in in Devil's Due at that time, and you're bringing it into the office saying, "Look at this comic, isn't it great?" Yeah, yeah. when <laughs> when the thing happened with Jinx, I was just like trying to get it in front of everyone's face, and they're just like, "We're trying to make our own books." Leave me alone. <laughs> yeah, not yeah, yeah, yeah. The sort of uh, feeling a little bit sore maybe about uh, about some of that. Yeah. Cool. So, so then, what's the trajectory from from all of that to then Toy Du Jour and um, to to present day? Yeah. So Toy Du Jour actually spawned out of Devil's Due, where uh, believe it or not, I had like a ton of toys in my cubicle when I moved over to the position of uh, publisher, assistant publisher. So we had these uh, sort of like chest high walls around all the cubes. And I would bring in a toy like almost every day and just set it up on there for people to come over and be like, oh, what's the new toy today? And it literally spawned from that where <laughs> right. uh, I, I created a website just to put my toys on it and like a blog fashion. And it was like a review website, but it's it's all toys that I bought. So I love them all. And there's not not really reviews, just like here's some cool shit I bought. Uh, so I had Toy Du Jour forever. And then when... Kanoichi was acquired by a large digital agency uh, here in Chicago. Um, we all we all moved over to like a um, project manager role, and slowly the Hasbro stuff switched from like fun packaging stuff to um, I was working with Motorola and Culligan, and I just was not digging working at a large agency at all. And this this company only acquired Kanoichi so that they could acquire like the Hasbro logo and put it on their website of clients that they've worked with. So like, I, I remember specifically the last uh, San Diego Comic-Con box set that I worked on the uh, Joe versus Transformers one with the uh, uh, jet fire on the cover and this, and this hound that my team, when they were looking at the project and they looked at how much we got paid for doing these, they're like, this is not worth your time. Like this is not projects we should be doing in this company, this company. I mean, that is the fun shit, but it wasn't the stuff that they wanted to, to have in-house we did do a lot of hasbro work 
where we moved into websites. Like uh, when the new Furby launched that year, we did the Furby Boom website, which was like a huge project for us. We did a Nerf, like a heads-up display app for for plugging your phone on top of a Nerf blaster and having a like a little readout HOD or whatever or HUD. Uh, we did that for Nerf and Rebel. So a lot of stuff just moved into the realm of websites and apps. And like while it's still fun, it still has real work. It wasn't at all where I came from. And then as soon as I started getting yelled at about like spreadsheets for money on Culligan, I'm like, ah, I'm just I'm out. And I, I, I asked Liz recently, I was like, what was, I don't remember the conversation and what it was because I was, I know that I was having a terrible time at this, at this company. And I know that it, it was you that said like, well, let's try to do the store. But I don't remember exactly how that went down. And I, I think that's all it was. It was like, I was miserable. And she was like, well, we've always talked about doing a retail space. So let's look for a space and see if we find something cheap. And we did. And that was 2014. And uh, so March of next year will be our 10 year anniversary of the store. Are you, uh, you open seven days a week? Do you have employees? Yeah, we're just closed on Mondays. Uh, we're open today. And Paul, who works for us over the weekend, he's been messaging me because he can't find something. And I'm like, I can't right now. I'm sorry. Paul, we're <laughs> so sorry. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I wonder if my store has been, I got a text. My store, my, store is, <laughs> my store is fine. Oh, good. Good. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's mostly just Liz and I. Uh, Liz has another job now. She's actually, she just started as a flight attendant this year. Uh, so she's not in all the time, but you know, she's the one that like, I have this really horrible problem where like people will sell us like say a GI Joe collection and I will immediately pull out like uh, Claymore or whatever and show it off on the Instagram and, and sell that figure. And then the rest of the figures just go behind the counter in a box. And she's <laughs> like, Hey, we should put these out and sell them. Right. I'm like, Oh yeah, I guess like my, my downfall <laughs> is just like finding that gold piece and showing it off and being like, job's done. And she's like, that's not. It's not the job, man. And uh, you, oh, yeah, it looks yeah. like you sort of got a few cool things here yeah. and there. Yeah. Your toy to your vintage toys, arts, and, and farts. Wow, there's a lot yeah. going on on the, <laughs> the, the, the D's. Supposed to, that's like the middle of the Toys R Us logo. There's a lot going on on this, yeah. on this image. Yeah. So the people that have been with us for a while will understand everything here. <laughs> but to show this to somebody right now and be like, yeah. Uh, so... Um, a few years ago, pre-pandemic, we went we for Halloween. We changed our logo and everything to a Toy de Jour version of the Toys R Us logo. So, like the last R and and Jour was turned around, and the D E was put in there in quote, which is great because like Toy de Jour is spelled wrong. Like it should be D U. But like I love that I got to put the quotes around D E for the <laughs> Toys R Us iteration of it. Uh, so like often you'll see the um, the Toys R Us logo on things. Like right now it's on our door. Like we've kept it around a while and um the de i think is our logo like if you look at our instagram profile that's the de but then the full name like our full christian name of the store is vintage toys arts and farts because we carry vintage items which is like household stuff or like um like vintage artwork or you know just like separating vintage from the toys like there's a comma there on purpose because we we do more than just vintage toys we do vintage clothing you know like vintage household stuff then there's toys, which obviously we focus on vintage toys, but we do modern stuff like I was uh, probably before we started recording, but complaining about um, like we, we do modern stuff. Like we do Marvel Legends and stuff like that. Uh, the art is because we do art shows um, a few times a year, uh, almost like every other month-ish. 
And then the farts is just representing the novelty uh, section that we do. We try to always keep in like the, the gag gifts and the, the novelty gifts there. Your G.I. Joe candles are wild. Oh, <laughs> thanks. Um, I remember uh, the last Joe Con. Uh, that was, was that Chattanooga, right? I, I brought those down to sell and I had them set up at a booth. And then um, I don't, I, I'm assuming you guys know, but I, I can't put this <laughs> on you. Uh, you know Ben Conway? Yes, Ben Conway, the mastermind behind the Skeletron Roboskull. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so he's a huge Storm Shadow fan, and he bought the Storm Shadow candle. And the Storm Shadow candle has uh, Storm Shadow holding this little scroll, and it says something along the lines of, oh, "Man, it." So it, it's a riddle, but it says something like, "When when the tempest fails, the word shall mean something else." I don't know. It's it's, it's a riddle that just means Storm Shadow is an anagram for Thomas Sword. And I don't know if that was intentional. Well, I do know it was not intentional. But just when I found out that you could spell the words Thomas Sword from Storm Shadow, I thought it was like one of the coolest things. So I just made a little hint to that. And at that last JoeCon, Ben bought the candle and I told him about what that meant. And he like freaked out and he's like, I'm going to go show it to Hama. I'm like, <laughs> okay, cool. Let me know how it goes. And I had to leave that day. I didn't stay for Sunday. And I, I messaged him afterwards. He's like, Dude, I was so excited, and he did not give a crap. <laughs> and I was like, "Well, I'm glad you took that bullet, and not me." And yeah, you got some cool GI Joe themed posts or uh, prints. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I did those a while ago. I did those early on at at, um, at Toy Dijer. Um I, I haven't done any recently, but I did. Um, I think this one in 1982 for the Joes, just accessory prints. Oh, I did the. The Renegades as well, Sauter's Renegades. Uh, those were the three Joe prints that I did. So you mentioned having the the GI Joe Creator Signing Event promoting mm-hmm. uh, After Action Report uh, Volume Two recently. Right. How was uh, how was that sort of getting back in the the kind of the GI Joe Devil's Due frame of mind and and meeting with all those guys and sort of dredging up all of those those memories? I, 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 it was super cool. Like. Uh, uh, Josh and Roger, they're, I mean, they're great guys. I've known them forever. Um, so it was, it was great for them to, to come out and get to do this with us. They had a blast and I'm really glad that it happened uh, because like just them getting to like, and they do shows, you know, they do shows all the time with this book, but like they were really happy to get to do an author signing. And I, I thought it was fantastic. And just to be able to provide them and what they do and Blaylock and unfortunately not Sealy because he, I think he had COVID that day or that weekend, however long, but just, just to provide them and give our Joe fans, like our Joe collectors that are regulars, uh, an opportunity to come in and, and see something like this. It was, it was pretty great. Maybe when my book's out, I can do a thing at your store. Yeah. He said, he, he said sheepishly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, Mark, Sam, I have run out of questions. What are you going to show us? What's the last cool thing? It's literally not here, but this is just a printer mock for the cover to the hardback for Snake Eyes. Uh, And we hinted, uh, so Sean Dove and I hinted to uh, people on the message boards at the time. Wow, look at this. It's, what? That's cool. Two of them. (laughs) Um, We we said we were going to hide, like this this went down in history, uh, but unfortunately it didn't actually happen. We said we were going to hide Snake Eyes' name in the hardback, and we did. 
so in the digital files, I think it's the uh, the credits page where there's like a, a, a nice tree, like a cherry blossom tree. And it's all the credits on like the first inside front cover stuff. In in the little hill, we wrote his name. But when it printed, it was too dark to be seen against the black. So we were like, that's that's fine because we shouldn't have been doing that anyway. Like, that was a joke <laughs> that like we shouldn't have put in there. His name that we came up with in the office was uh, Cecil Snakeblade McCool. And <laughs> so that's what got printed in there. Wow. Yeah, and the, I mean the McCool is just like Droopy McCool, uh, the Star Wars dude. Well, good good news, bad news. Good news, it didn't really happen, so you mm. didn't make that impression yeah. on GI Joe fandom. Bad news, someone is listening to this podcast, and they might be somehow in charge of GI Joe in ten or twenty years, <laughs> and who knows if that name will show up somewhere in canon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, somebody like somebody at Hasbro and uh, I guess IDW have the digital files, you know, or did IDW did for reprints. So like it's there, it's in the digital file. So somebody wants to pop that forward. Uh, listeners, sometimes I encourage you to write emails previously to IDW, now to Skybound <laughs> with your requests. Mm-hmm. I'm going to ask you not to email Skybound with any request <laughs> relating to that silly name that Sam just mentioned. We can let this, we can let this one lie. What's a, what's a name that you guys would, would allow for? I mean, obviously, never name him. Well, Hama, like, on, on, on Facebook, Hama has referred to the person who he met in Vietnam, who Snake Eyes is sort of based on. Mm-hmm. And Hama has... Uh, has used that name and has said, I also don't know if this was this guy's real name because a lot of people you'd call them by their last name or like mm-hmm. the city or town where they were from. So there is a first name, last name sort of floating out there, which is kind of a stand-in for Snake Eyes' name. But I think Hama's only typed it on social media and it, is, it hasn't made it to any comics or toy packaging or anything. So for me, it's classified. <laughs> so... Uh, that reasoning is the only reason you would allow that name, right? I mean, if somebody decided, like, like if a Skybound author said, like, well, this is the name now, would you have a problem with the name? Um, I, I think I prefer that Hama come up with it because the mythology mm-hmm. is is his. Yeah. But I also recognize that uh, any one person who's writing G.I. Joe doesn't own G.I. Joe. Hasbro's the arbiter and... You know, starting in a couple months, there'll be two different comics, G.I. Joe continuities. And so if, you know, if a Joshua Williamson wants to, or, a, you know, Robert Kirkman wants to come up with a name, then, you know, that's the name over here. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I personally feel like that's probably why we went so stupid and silly with it, because we wouldn't accept <laughs> any any name, you know? Right. <laughs> um, I was, I would go a step further. If somehow you're your silly name had a visual mm-hmm. like it's like what he wore to senior prom in high school. Uh, That's when yeah. I would say to our listeners, like uh, I would say, I would say to Mark <clears throat> and the podcast sentence that launched a hundred cosplays or, <laughs> or, and here's the podcast nice. episode that launched a hundred action figure customizations. <laughs> oh man. I mean, you know, it would happen too. It would happen. And as we wrap up, uh, Sam, Let's remind people where they can find you uh, these days. Yep, toydejour.com. Uh, all of our socials are at toydejour, T-O-Y-D-E-J-O-U-R, spelled incorrectly. 
<laughs> this is a brick and mortar store in in what part of Chicago? Uh, we're in the Logan Square neighborhood in Chicago. Okay. And we're just off the highway for anybody that's scared of driving in a big city, uh, right off 9094 on Fullerton Avenue in, Ch in Chicago. Excellent. And Tim, can you remind people where people can find you when you're not talking to me and our guests about all things G.I. Joe? Video essays on television and film at our YouTube channel, Atomic Abe Productions, my brick and mortar comic book shop in Somerville, Massachusetts is Hub Comics, and I write about G.I. Joe at a realamericanbook.com. Very good. And if you want to find more about Talking Joe, our website is talkingjoe.co.uk. That points you to all of the places where we are. So with all of that said and done, a big thanks to Sam for spending hey. uh, such a generous amount of time with us delving into the devil's due uh, history thanks so much for having me guys i appreciate it with all that said and done i think it's time to say that nobody beats talking joe an international podcast laters awesome bye